0: Chapter 1. Magic in its Relation to the Supernatural Magic in General Found in the most ancient nations Chaldeans, Chinese, Indians, Phoenicians Magic of the Greeks and Romans Of the Scythians, Germans, Slavs, Celts, Gauls Dualism Magic of the Hebrews, the Kabbalah Its elementary spirits, magic amongst the natives of America, Greenland, Kamchatka, Siberia, Africa, California, etc. Query as to who was the original inventor of it. The two kinds of magic, black and white. Magic as it existed in Egypt. Mode of exercising. Formulas of invocation black magic, forms of conjuration, professors of magic, Albertus Magnus, Paracelsus, Agrippa, learned authorities on the art. The awful shadow of some unseen power floats, though unseen, among us, visiting, this various world with an inconstant wing, as summer winds that creep from flower to flower like moonbeams that behind some piney mountain shower. It visits within constant glance, each human heart and countenance, like hues and harmonies of evening, like clouds and starlight widely spread, like memory of music fled, like aught that for its grace may be, dear and yet dearer for its mystery. Shelley As the belief in the supernatural or spiritualism has, from the earliest ages, had a constant tendency to degenerate into magic, because human nature has that downward bias, it is very desirable to have a clear notion of what magic is, that we may the more sacredly guard the great gift of spiritual life, which, more or less, is conferred on us, from everything but its own holy uses and objects. For this purpose I here take a summary view of magic, that it may also save me the necessity of farther extended reference to it in the course of this history. Magic, in the highest sense of the word, and in its construction into an art, is clearly traceable to High Asia and to its southeastern regions. The most ancient accounts of it, if we accept Egypt, which may almost be said to belong to that quarter of the globe, are altogether from Asia. The books of Moses make us acquainted with several distinct artistic and highly perfected kinds of conjuration, and certain positive laws against it. The same is the case with the Indian law book of Manu, who, according to Sir William Jones, lived about 300 years before Christ. We say nothing of the Persians and their magi. We find the same traces of magic as an art amongst the most ancient Chinese. Amongst the Chaldeans and Babylonians, magical astrology and soothsaying are as old as the history of these people, and the same is the case with the Phoenicians. If we turn from Eastern, Central, and Northern Asia to High Asia, we find Prometheus paying on Caucasus, the penalty of endeavoring to make man independent of the gods. Prometheus and Sisyphus are, as far as magic power is concerned, the fausts of the ancient world. It is in the vicinity of the Caucasus, too, that we find the notorious magic family, which come before us so frequently in Homer and the later writers of Greece and Rome. aetes Pasiphae, Circe, and Medea. Homer shows distinctly that magic is not of European, expressly not of Grecian growth. Waksmouth thinks that the whole family, by a visible syncretism in the early ages of Greece, were deduced from Helios in order to bring them nearer to the national and mythological sphere, and thence to introduce their magic mysteries into the Greek literature. Circe herself was a goddess, sister to Ates, both the children of Helios and of Perseus, the daughter of Oceanus. Their magic art is not Greek, but points to Asia. As they, to effect their metamorphosis, were obliged to mix, pharmomacha lugra, and touch the Grecians with a magic rod. Even the latter and very characteristic magic term, Selgiv, does not appear in Circe's first conjuration, and she does not use the magic formula. In order to defeat her sorcery, human science is not sufficient. But Hermes, a god, is sent to find the Malu, Mali. Men cannot easily pluck it. The gods can do all things, and hence we see the reason for their constant invocation in all such magic processes. Let the reader clearly understand this. Notwithstanding this later development of magic in Greece, this foreign art brought from Asia, which strove to make itself independent of the higher gods of the country, the oldest popular faith of Greece, as Hesiod shows, had its underworld and its good and bad subterranean gods and demons, and along with it, as in all other nations, an original belief in magic power. But this expanded and perfected itself, through the latter influence of the East, into an artistic system. The old national underworld was drawn into the sphere of the new magic, The machinery and operations of the arts of sorcery were attached to it, and men sought through the dark and destruction pregnant powers of fate what could not be accomplished by the gods of the country. The best commentary on this is in Virgil. The underworld, before the importation of the new Asiatic doctrines of magic amongst the Greeks, was detested, as everywhere else, by both gods and men. Terrific monsters haunted it. The hostile races of giants and titans were banished thither. There stagnated the mysterious Stygian flood. Hence, in Lucan, Il supernis de tetastanda dies novarat. Hence, Ireclo, the celebrated Thessalian sorceress, Grata dies arabi arcana, ditis operati, etc. Hence, in the later Greek and Roman magic eras, the original powers of the underworld, Pluto, Proserpine, etc., are not the masters and protectors of the new foreign art, but it is Hecate. This power, who in Hesiod had been placed over the elements in this later mythology, is transferred to the underworld with Selene, no doubt, because abjurations, magic arts, and offerings were made by night. Artemis, Persephone, etc., and a whole infernal court and environment of specters, phantasm, dogs, serpents, etc., being made obedient to the great queen of sorcery. This includes a complete outline of the origin of magic in Greece and Rome, and of its main features to the latest period. We may now take a hasty glance at it in other regions, turn again to the east, The belief in good and bad spirits prevailed universally amongst the Chaldeans, Persians, Egyptians, Phoenicians, Indians, Carthaginians, Canaanites, etc. And everywhere, the idea of magic was associated with it. Amongst the greater part of the Asiatics and Africans, there could be no conflict betwixt their mythology and this art, for their gods were of the class of powers invoked. As for the Scythians, Germans, Slavs, Celts, Gauls, etc., from the meager knowledge that we have of their mythologies, the same ideas appear to prevail as amongst all other people in the same degree of cultivation. Pliny tells us, Britannia hodic atonita magium, celebrat tantis ceremonis, ut dedes persis videri posit. Helmut shows us that the Slavs had their Zernbog, their black, bad god, and the very name reveals a dualism, for bog is yet in Polish god, and Zern black. Thus, amid all these people, and still more distinctly amongst the Scandinavians, see the Eddas. The faith in magic was universal. The religion of most of these nations consisted chiefly in a corrupted star and fire worship, The Persians alone appear to have preserved this in any degree of purity. Over the whole East extended the intellectual system, but under the most varied forms and everywhere connected with dualism. Wherever the Greeks and Romans planted colonies, their mythology soon received the Oriental inoculation of the dark and hostile powers. Thus the magic of the Romans and Greeks carried back to those regions naturally coalesced with the Asiatic ideas and became doubly strong. In Persia, Egypt, and Carthage, this was the case. But it was in the system of Zoroaster that the dual strife assumed the most positive form. Hormuzd and Aramon stand as the representatives of the two principles in perpetual conflict. In a less distant degree, the same is the case in the teachings regarding Osiris, Isis, and Typhon. In the mythologies of both these peoples prevails the demon system, the good and the bad principle, and each had its subordinate powers. The dualism of the Chaldeans is less known, but Plutarch says that they had two good and two bad gods, and numerous neutral ones. Dualism lies equally at the foundation of the Indian mythologies. They have whole troops of contending demons or dews which do not confine themselves to the theology, but spread through all their poetry, dramas, and tales, as in Sakontala, etc. Sir William Jones in The Asiatic Researches points out the relationship of the language of the Zend Avesta to that of the Sanskrit. And Ammonius Marcellinus tells us that Zoroaster made acquaintance with the Brahmins, and Arian in the Indian expedition of Alexander and Strabo also tell us abundance of things about Indian magic and about the little men three spans high which proclaim their kinship to our fairies. The Jews brought back from the Babylonian captivity all the ideas of the Persian dualism, and they accused our Savior and the Apostles of performing all their miracles by magic, and the great master of sorcery, the devil, Horst and his Zobor Bibliothek, is quoting a long list of instances from the gospel narratives it says it is in vain to attempt to clear away from these gospel narratives the devil and his demons such an exegesis is opposed to the whole faith of the world at that time if we are to make these statements now mean just what we please why did no single man in the ancient world understand them so and we become wiser then let us congratulate ourselves on our good fortune but we cannot, on that account, compel those venerable writers to say what they, in their own time, neither could nor would say. The Kabbalah contains a most comprehensive account of the magic of the Jews, of the Kishuf, or higher magic, the Monen, the astrological, and the Nishush or prophetic department. According to the Kabbalah, there is, besides the angels, a middle race of beings which men usually call the elementary spirits, but known to the Jews under the general name of Skarim, the male being called Ruchin, the female Lilin, and described as the dregs or lowest of the spiritual orders. These spirits of the elements, the head of whom is the better Asmodeus, are divided into four principal classes. The first, which consists of the element of fire, and therefore cannot be seen with the eye, are well disposed to the good they willingly help and support men they are white and understand thora or law since they stand in connection with the angel world they possess many secrets of nature solomon made use of them and addressed himself to their king the second class formed out of fire and air is lower but yet good and wise but invisible to human eyes both classes inhabit the upper regions The third class consists of fire, air, and water, and are sometimes apparent to the senses. Their soul, according to Loria, is of the vegetable nature. The fourth class, besides the former elements, has a component of fine earth, and their soul is of the mineral nature, and can be fully perceived by the senses. All these spirits of the elements eat and drink, propagate and are subject to dissolution. The greater part of the two last kinds are of wicked disposition, mock, and deceive men, and are glad to do them mischief. Therefore they are under the authority of the evil Asmodeus, who is on the side of Smales, the devil. Whence they are called, like the dark satanic spirits, Mazikim and Makablim, there are amongst them some individuals of a more friendly nature, who mean well to men, and employ themselves in all sorts of domestic services. These two classes divide into different sorts. Some live amongst men, others in the waters, a third kind in filthy places, and a fourth in mountains and deserts. Each loves that element out of which it had its origin. Some called jemim are of hideous aspect and appear bodily in the open day amongst the mountains. The two higher orders of these elementary spirits, who form the transition link betwixt the visible and invisible, stand bodily next to man, and are very dangerous, being endowed with various extraordinary powers, and having great insight into the hidden kingdoms of the lower nature, and through their connection with the spirit world, have some knowledge of the future, but chiefly in natural things. Hence men so soon began to worship them and make offerings to them. Some of these answer to our hop thrushes and brownies, others to the gods— of the heathen and the oracles. The higher these spirits, says the Kabbalah, though they can predict something of the future, are not much to be depended on, because they are more connected with the natural than the spiritual world, and see only through such media. The lower of these natures are still less trustworthy, since from their lower position their vision is more obscure, and they often seek to deceive men by lies. These spirits of the elements live in the birds both of the upper and lower air, in beasts, and in the earth and its minerals. Hence, the augurs obtained instructions from them through birds of prey, and magicians through stones, metals, and crystals. Maimonides says that it was not only allowed the Jews by their traditions, but commanded them to maintain an intimate connection with their departed friends not out of curiosity or selfish purposes, but for fellowship in and through God. Therefore, the Israelite was bound to pray for his brother, who was yet in the region of purification. But only in cases of the highest necessity, and for the good of those left behind, was it permitted to inquire of the dead. They had a feast of blood on such occasions. A hole was dug, blood poured in and over at a table was set at which they ate, and the Shedim or spirits of a middle nature appeared and answered their questions, even about the future. The Jews had the practice of tattooing certain names or pictures on their hands by which they came into rapport with these spirits, and they used many magic ceremonies for the same purposes. They put to flight fierce beasts by the utterance of the sacred name and cured many hurts and diseases by means of magic. By the monen, they produced what the Scotch call glamour, making imaginary things appear real. But this delusion would not bear the test of water. In the Sohar, it is taught that in the hour of death, a higher ruach, or spirit, is imparted to men than what they had in life, by which they see what they never saw before, see their departed friends and relations. The Jews, however, believed that the soul was not wholly sundered from all connection with the body, but that the Habal de Garmin, the elementary body, or what the Germans call the nerve spirit, remained in the grave, incorruptible, till the resurrection, when it was reunited to the soul. That this Habal de Garmin had all the form of the body and was the real resurrection body that it had a certain consciousness and passed the time in pleasant dreams, unless disturbed by the nearness to some wicked or hostile body. Hence the necessity of burying friends together and enemies far apart. Hence the desire of those who love each other to rest together in the earth. The soul in the other world is held in connection with this elementary body in the grave by the zelem, or shade, in which it is wrapped the vehicle of the Greek philosophers. All souls must pass through a condition of purgation. When the purer souls pass into the Gennedon, or subterranean paradise, till the general resurrection, and the impure into the place of farther purgation and punishment. In the middle, betwixt the outer world, and Ginem, or hell, lies the region of the spirits of the elements, or of nature. To these spirits of the elements, or skidim, No doubt St. Paul alludes where, in our vague translation of the passage, speaking of the spiritual powers against which we have to contend, he names amongst them spiritual wickedness in high places, but which should be rendered the spiritualities or spirits of wickedness in the upper regions, which the French have more correctly rendered l'esprit malin qui sont dans l'air, and Luther De bosen gistern unter de Himmel. As it was in the ancient world both amongst cultivated and uncultivated nations, so it is in the present age. We find the same faith in both classes of spirit power, in good and bad, and in magic arts everywhere, and even amongst nations who seem to have had for ages no intercourse with the old world, namely those of America. Locke says, We find everywhere no other ideas of the powers and operations of what we term spirits than those which we draw from the idea of our own spirits as we reflect on the operations of our own souls and carefully note them. Without doubt, the spirits which animate our bodies possess a very inferior rank, whence the belief in higher and more powerful, better or worse spiritual natures operating on the earth is very natural to the human soul. We find these ideas in Greenland, where, according to the missionaries, Kranz and Egid, the inhabitants pay little regard to the good Perksama, meaning, in their language, he above there, because they know that he will do them no harm. But they zealously worship the evil power Angakok, from whom their priests, medicine men, and conjurers are also named. And all the operations of the magicians are supposed to become effectual, from the cooperation of Angakok and his inferior spirits. So in Greenland, too, that widely diffused dualism exists. We find again very much the same class of ideas and practices in Kamchatka, according to Pallas, Krasinanikau, and others. So also amongst the Samoyedis and Siberians. Herr von Mashutskin who accompanied Colonel Wrangell on the North Pole Expedition in 1820, gives us a remarkable account of these incantations of the shamans in Northern Asia. These men enter into a wild dance in which they throw their heads about in a wonderful manner, every now and then pausing to take some stupefying drink. They finally fall into unconsciousness, followed by convulsions and groans and wild howls. The shamans then stare wildly and terribly. And in this state, questions are put to them. Makshutskin says that at Alar-Sut, a day's journey from Worshojansk, he saw a shaman who, in this state, answered him questions regarding his far-distant friends, which he afterwards found to be quite true. The shaman could possibly have known nothing of him or his friends. On awaking, like all the clairvoyants, he knew nothing of what had passed. In Luskiel's History of the Missions of the Evangelical Brethren amongst the Delaware and Iroquois Indians, we learn that these as well as the Illinois tribes and Hurons and other North American natives not only believed in good and bad spirits, but in the operations on man through magical and therapeutic arts. In another part of these volumes, 1. I have given particular relations of such things amongst the Ojibwe's, from schoolcraft and coal, others from the Mexicans, Peruvians, Caribs, etc. Such is the faith in magic and demon power also, according to Father Antonio Zucchelli, and other writers amongst the Africans of Congo and Luango, who pay particular reverence to a black goat. Such also amongst the Mandingo Negroes, according to Campbell and other missionary travelers, amongst those of South Africa, the Bushmans, the Namakas, etc. In Dutch Guiana says how the natives believe in the existence of a host of subordinate evil spirits who produce thunder, storms, earthquakes, and diseases. These they name Yawahoos, probably the origin of Swift's name Yahoos, and seek by magic to win them over, so as to render them innocuous to them. The natives of California hold the same faith. The Chimer, in the north of California, declared to the missionaries that the highest good God, He who lives, create a great number of subordinate spirits who fell away from Him, and are now in hostility to Him and torment us. In a word, the faith is universal, and home, Lord Camis, says truly in his Sketches of the History of Man, that the faith in mingled God and evil spirits amongst the savage and uncultivated peoples is one and the same with their faith in magic. As celebrated German poet has equally well expressed this great fact. On this cosmopolitan and inerratical persuasion was gradually erected the artistic system of magic, which has not yet lost its hold even on the most cultivated nations. Who is the original discoverer of it? Adam, Enoch, Seth, Abraham, Solomon, Zoroaster, Hermes, Trismegistus, or some other more remote and mysterious personage according to the Egyptian or Indian theories. To all these has the science been attributed, and Pliny tells us that a certain great magician, Austines, brought it from Asia into Greece. But to none of these does it owe its origin it lies in the very foundations of the human mind. Given a conviction of the existence of spiritual and mighty powers exerting their influence over men, the attempt to find means of propitiating these powers, and of cooperating with them for the restraint and subjection of one section or the other of them, is a certainty. As there are good and evil spiritual powers, so the art of invoking them soon naturally directed itself into the good and the evil the Magia, and the Gotia. Cicero derives the name of magic from the Persians. Magi, ogorontur, attic, divinant. Sapientum et doctorum, genus magorum, habitur in Persis. So too Apuleius. Suidas tells us the difference exactly betwixt Magia and Gotia. Undoubtedly, the word is of Median, an old Persian origin. Meh or Maga, meaning something great, excellent, and revered. And the Magi of the Persians, Medes, Chaldeans, and Indians, being their highest class of religious philosophers. Mog is still the Persian word, and Mogbed, their high priest, as the high priest of the Parsis at Surat is called Mobed, When magic arrived in Greece, it found a mythology essentially built on the elements of nature, and therefore essentially congenial to it. In Chaldea, it had already been combined with astrology, or with the powers supposed to preside over the stars. The Greeks had already discovered more of those secret powers of nature, electricity, magnetism, mesmerism, clairvoyance through means of particular vapors or manipulations. Which we suppose the moderns only to have discovered, and thus gave a significance and a strength to their ideas of magic, which carried it to its highest perfection. The Greeks conveyed it to the Romans. Let anyone refer to the passages in Homer and the Greek tragedians, in Virgil, Horace, Ovid, Propitius, and others, where magic is mentioned, and to their celebrated enchantresses, Medea, Circe, Aretho, Canidia etc. And then they at least see what was the popular opinion of the art, and of those women as commanders and compellers of the gods, as rulers over fate and men. We see in the Bible striking examples of the art as it existed in ancient Egypt, and even after the Christian era, the Neoplatonists, and indeed some classes of Christians, were deeply devoted to it, Christianity, on the whole, from its higher and pure knowledge, must necessarily reject it. Yet it found its way into the Church through the practice of exorcism, employed in imitation of Christ, the cast-out devils. The formulas of the Church, as time advanced, became more and more ceremonious, and approaching in character at least to white magic, in opposition to black magic or black art in which appeal was made to demons to assist in obtaining hidden treasures, acquiring honors, wealth, and other worldly advantages, or in which the sacred names of God and Christ were blasphemously used for the same base ends. In what came to be called Pneumatologia Occulta Evera, all the forms of abjuration and conjuration were laid down. The exorcist was, in an all well-washed and cleansed room, or under the open sky, having the preceding morning well washed his body all over to enter a circle, but not before midnight. He must be newly and purely clad in a sort of surplus, having a consecrated band falling in front, hanging from the neck and written over with sacred characters. He must wear on his head a tall pointed cap of fine linen, on the front of which is attached a paper label, having written upon it in Hebrew the holy name Tetragrammaton. A name not to be spoken. The ground must be purified from all uncleanness and well-fumigated. He must fumigate the sacred name on his cap, the letters of which must be written with a never-before-used pen dipped in the blood of a white dove. When the exorcist wishes to release a miserable spirit which haunts some spot on account of its hidden treasure, he is recommended to take one or two other persons, properly purified, into the circle with him so that whilst he exercises the spirit, others may make two different kinds of smoke, one to allure the spirit and the other to drive it, or any evil spirits, away when necessary. They are to carry each a piece of chalk, and on the four outsides of the circle draw as many pentacles. One of the associates must hold in one hand a glass of holy water, in the other a cup containing the mixed blood of a black lamb not a year old, and of a white pigeon, not two months old. The exorcist must hold in his right hand a crucifix, and four wax lights must be lit within the circle. The staff caroli, standing in the center. They must then sprinkle the mingled blood and water all around the circle. And kneeling down, each must cross himself on the forehead, the mouth, and the heart, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The exorcist then makes a prayer for the success of their attempt. Scarcely shall this be done when the wicked spirits will begin to torment the unhappy soul, which they seek to release. And the abjuration must recommence, saying, All good spirits praise the Lord with us. At this the poor soul will sigh and complain and say, With me too. The incense is at the same time to be waved, and the associates to repeat. Amen, to all the prayers of the exorcist, which are made in succession. The poor soul reaches the outside of the circle, but its goalers hold it fast, and when the exorcist bids it depart to its eternal rest, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the devils set up a horrible raven cry, croak like frogs, and fly like ravens around the exorcist's heads. But they must trust in God's name and presence. The devils will try all kinds of illusions to put them off their guard, but they must not be alarmed. They must have three bits of bread and three bits of paper, on which the name of Jesus is written. And the instant the demons are compelled to deliver into the circle the treasure, the exorcist must lay a piece of bread and the inscribed paper upon it, that it may not be whisked away again or changed for something else, as will be the case if this not be promptly done. Then the exorcist must abjure the evil spirits and princes of hell Acheront, Ashtaroth, Magoth, Asmodi, Beelzebub, Belial, Armagmon, Pamon, Exon, with their subordinates and aiders, and all present spirits, keepers, and damned souls, in the all sacred mighty name Jehovah, Adonai, Eloha, Sadai, and Sabuath which is and was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who appeared face to face with Moses on Mount Sinai, who dwelt in the Urim and Thummim, to depart, and that in the strength of Hagio Tatu, which the holy angels adore in heaven with singing and cries of Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabaoth. And as the rebellious spirits left their seats in heaven never to return, so shall these evil ones evacuate the earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Then the damned souls will fling in the face of the exorcist that he is a sinner, and in no condition to force the treasure from them, and will mock and insult him. But he shall answer that all his sins are washed out in the blood of Christ, and he shall bid them depart as cursed ghosts and damned flies. And though they shall still resist, the exorcist shall utter fresh prayers and bannings in all the holy names, cross himself and his companions, who shall during the same make fresh consecrated smoke, and he shall point to the pentacles and extacles described on paper with various sacred characters, and shall add the last abjuration in the sacred names, Hel, Helium, Soter, Emmanuel, Saboth, Agla, Tetragrammaton, Agiros, Athios, Iskiros, Athanatos, Jehovah, Va, Adonai, Sadai, Homosion, Messias, Eschyirhi, uncreated Father, uncreated Son, uncreated Holy Ghost, Christ conquers, Christ rules, Christ triumphs. Still fresh abjurations and prayers are necessary before the cursed spirits will relinquish the poor soul and depart. But the exorcist adds fresh and more terrible abjurations and banishes them as cursed hell hounds into dark woods and fetid pools, and into the raging floods of hell by the name of Christ and all the evangelists. He holds up the cross before them, and fresh and stronger fumigations are made till they are compelled to depart and the poor tormented soul is comforted in the name of the Savior, and consigned to take care of the good angels. And the rescued treasure, of course, is secured for the church. And then all is concluded by hymns of praise and the singing of Psalm. 91. Certain days are laid down in the calendar of the church as most favorable for the practice of exorcism. And if the devils are difficult to drive, a fume of sulfur, asafoetida, bears gall, and rue is recommended, which it was presumed would outstench evil devils. Black Magic As its name imports, black magic or the black art was a machinery constructed for compelling the devils, by the power of the divine names, to submit to the magician and do his will for all or any of his earthly purposes, to bring him money, render him successful in love or war, or in any other ambition. It is a most blasphemous art, presuming to use the most holy names for the most unholy purposes, that the divine names never did convey any such power, it is absurd to suppose. But it is certain that the devils, under appearance of compulsion, are only too ready to answer such summonses, and that infernal magic is a real power and has done strange things. The magician and his companions, if he took any, entered a circle nine feet wide, inscribed round with the names and intervening crosses. Elohim, plus Adonai, plus El Zaboath, plus Algla, plus Jehovah, plus Alpha, plus Omega, plus On. On means the word Om said in the Talmud to be the omnipotent word by the pronunciation of which God created the world. The magician clad as the exorcist in pointed cap and long robe with magic signs on the cap, and a scapulary thrown over the robe bears also magic characters, holds a rod of peeled hazel, on which are written, In the blood of a white pigeon, Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Judaiorum. The conjuration must not take place before midnight, and if in a house the doors or windows must stand open, with no more persons in the house than are engaged in the business, it is most securely performed in the open air in solitary woods, fields, or meadows. The smoke used must be from poppy, hemlock, coriander, parsley, and crocus seeds. The conjuration must take place on a Wednesday or Friday, and in a house sacred to Mercury or Venus. The magician takes with him the signs and seals of the spirits he wishes to command, for the seals and signs of all them are drawn. These he lays close to the fire which he makes in the circle, and strikes them with his hazel rod, and if they do not appear he begins to burn them, on which they become obedient. And he and his assistants enter the circle, they say, Harim, Karas. Astikas, Enet, Miram, Baal, Elisa, Nemutai, Arista, Kapi, Magragrat, Sogizia, Suratbala. Then the signs of the spirits called upon are exhibited and their names pronounced. But not the names of the summoned spirits alone, but all the sacred names are invoked. Here is a conjuration of the spirit prince, Aziel. I conjure thee, Aziel, by these words of power. Mongrad, Gratiel, Lalilai, Emmanuel, Magod, Vagod, Saboliz, Sadai, I, Sodok, Asioth, Mani, Lali, that thou bringest me as much money as I desire, in good coin and unchangeable gold, and I command thee to do this, in the power of Tetragrammaton, Agla, Afbilion, Sia, Osion. Zeliano, Elion, and descend to me, appear to me in friendly guise before my circle, and bring what I demand from thee, Azil, in the name of Jesus, Amen. When the conjuration has succeeded, praises are sung to God equally impious. The most frightful curses were heaped on the head of Lucifer, the prince of the devils, if he did not compel. Aziel to appear in the shape of a boy twelve years old, and to do all that was required of him, bringing a specific sum, two hundred and ninety-nine thousand ducats in payable coin, but unchangeable gold. If the last condition was not imposed, the gold would, the next morning, be found dissolved into withered leaves or even horse dung. The magician bearding the devil, said that he set foot on the threshold of hell, and would compel him by the name of Christ and the seal of Solomon to obey, or would heap upon him the most unimaginable pangs and torments to which the hottest hell should seem mild. This specimen of the infernal art may suffice. Whole volumes, almost libraries, exist of it in all the ancient languages, but especially in Arabic and Latin, as well as in all the modern languages. Amongst the most celebrated professors of the art, many of whom have left treatises of it, more or less white or black, are Herpentil, Cormither, Cellus, Albertus Magnus, Roger Bacon, Trithemius, Cardan, Pomponazzi, Celipinus, Campanella, Gaffarelli, Pignatelli, Robert Flood, Caspar Pusser, John D., Gideus Gutmann. Heinrich Runov, Jacob Horst, Paracelsus, Cornelius Agrippa of Retterheim, Dr. Faustus, etc., etc. In the various departments of magic, astrology was deeply interwoven. Great power was attributed to amulets, seals, astral and other diagrams, magic roots or the spring root, or mandrake, out of which little images were made, and were pretended to have grown so naturally which were called alruns or runes. In ancient times, the herb molly, snakes, hyenas, etc., played a great part. And in later times, the hearts of moles and of black dogs were supposed to possess great magic virtues. In the witch times, a white otter played a great part. The white otter could, however, only be obtained by pronouncing 13 words. Studi, Hadi, Hanadme, Kamdardne, Cooker, Lice, Erns, Lucan, Curide, Sagina, Sagin, Kati, Trinery, which the devil said he had rather be in the hottest hell than here. The words indeed are almost as barbarous as those which Swedes tells us. The Milesian women and children sang to their goddess to get rid of the plague. Bedu, Zaps, Khthon, Plactron. Sphinx, nodsby, plethuptas, phlegmos, Jo having obtained the white otter, you can go about invisibly on foot or horseback, pass through closed doors, you shall have all the world in your power, magistrates and judges shall decide in your favor, and you have only to desire wealth, honor, or anything else to have it. The Hypericum, or St. John's wort, possessed wonderful powers, like the ancient Aglauftis, whatever that might be, and the Osiris herb mentioned by Pliny, Elian, and others. With the wonderful story of the beautiful gardens raised by magic by Albertus Magnus, for the entertainment of William Earl of Holland at Cologne, with wonderful fruits and tropical flowers, scenery and climate in the midst of winter, The reader is familiar. Such were the notions of magic power in that age. The professors of the occult sciences, as Albertus Magnus, Paracelsus, Agrippa, etc., not only believed in astral influences operating on the earth, but they had a perception of secret potencies in physical nature, which have since been proved realities by the discoveries of electricity, magnetism, the odyllic force, mesmerism, etc., The astrologists and alchemists were foster fathers of the more actual sciences, astronomy and chemistry. In both of these, as in the moon's influence on the tides, in the recent discoveries, in the properties of the solar rays, and the varied developments of chemistry, they were already in contact with facts which they had not the instruments in the modern science to bring forth to the light of demonstration. I have thus sketched at once an outline of magic, the shadow haunting the course of spiritualism, that I may have no farther occasion to dwell upon it, except it may be in a mere passing reference. Those who would inform themselves farther of Jewish magic may consult the Talmud and the Kabbalah with the book Shemhamfrosh, founded on the latter, printed in 1686 by Andreas Lupius of Wessel. The shamhamphrosh being not the sacred name, but the description and meaning of it. In contemplating even the less offensive magic, even that so much used by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages in cases of exorcism, we are struck with the awful fall from the simple sublimity of the theurgy of the gospel times, when Christ and his apostles commanded the unclean spirits and they came out of their victims. In its best shape, magic is a revolting invasion of the sacred power of the supernatural in the church. In its darkest form, it is concretely devilish. Yet, there have not been wanting journals which have been repeatedly inviting spiritualists to this prostitution of a divine power, to predict the winner of the derby, or to enable sordid speculators to make profitable transactions on the stock exchange. Chapter 2. The Supernatural in the Greek and Other Eastern Churches The historians of the Church for the first six centuries, all Greek or Syrian, Eusebius, Socrates, Sozomen, Theodore, and evagrius the doctrines of the Greek, Syrian, and Roman churches during that time identical. Faith in the supernatural in the Syrian Church shown by their liturgies. Prayers for protection against evil spirits. The spiritualism of the ancient Syrian saints and fathers. This faith still retained by the Greek and Russian churches. Miraculous Greek and Russian pictures. Notice of one by Miss Brimmer in Greece. Exorcism as practiced in Palestine, seen by Dr. Thompson. The practice called douche. Form of invocation used by Abdel Kader El Mugrabi Universal Prevalence of Magic in the East Belief that Jinns watched over hidden treasure destruction of Aleppo predicted by M. Lustenau and witnessed by doctor Wolf predicted death of Ezra de Picito Silence of Church of England writers on the East on this subject. Dr. Stanley, Etheridge, Appleyard. Circumstances in the life of the Russian patriarch, Nikon. Instances of the miraculous in the Russian histories of the church. Platon and Moraviv. The Reverend R.W. Blackmore, confirmatory of Moraviv. The holy icons. Warnings and miraculous cures. Perhaps with the exception of Protestantism, there is not a faith recorded in the world's history, which has lent not upon supernatural revelations, and these the most bright and frequent in proportion as we approach the primitive ages. Dr. J. J. Garth Wilkinson There is a great difference betwixt philosophy and other arts, and a greater yet betwixt that philosophy itself which is of divine contemplation, and that which has a regard to things here below. Divine philosophy is much higher and braver. It seeks a larger scope, and being unsatisfied with what it sees, it aspires to the knowledge of something greater and fairer, and which nature has placed out of our view. The one only teaches us what is done upon the earth. The other reveals to us that which is actually done in heaven. Seneca's Morals It is scarcely necessary to produce evidence of the spiritualism of the Greek Church, for it was for six centuries identical with the Roman Church, and on separating did so politically and not polemically. The tenets of the Greek Church continued and still continue, the same in all essentials except with regard to the procedure of the Holy Ghost, and in rejecting purgatory, without, however, expressly rejecting the intermediate state. All the historians of the first six centuries are the historians of the church at large, up to that time including both Rome, Greece, and Syria. All were Syrians or Greeks. Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea in Syria. Socrates was a native of Constantinople. He was educated at Constantinople, commenced his career there as a special pleader, and on retiring from practice, employed himself in writing his history. Sozamen was a Syrian, born in Palestine, educated at Berytus, the modern Beirut, and afterwards removed to Constantinople. Theodore was a Syrian, was educated under the celebrated Chrysostom, Patriarch of Constantinople, and himself lived most of his life at Antioch. Evagrius was also a Syrian of Antioch. Thus, for the first six centuries, the doctrine and practice of the Roman, Greek, and Syrian churches were identical. Their historians were, as I have observed, Syrian or Greek, and are all redolent of miracle. Without encumbering my page with voluminous examples of the continuance of this faith, both in the Greek and Syrian churches, I may refer to the works of recent travelers, where the same belief and practice are shown to remain. In the Syrian churches, whether Nestorian, Maronite, or Jacobite, the latter professing to be the church of the primitive Jews at the time of our Savior, we find the liturgies full of the expressions of the presence and action of spiritual beings, both good and bad. In the Jacobite liturgy, we find the deacon saying, The gates of heaven are opened, and the Holy Spirit descends upon these mysteries to overspread them. We stand in the dreadful place, with cherubim and seraphim surrounded. Brethren and companions, are we made in the watches and services of angels and spirits who are flames of fire? Like the Roman church, this church prays to the Holy Virgin, the Mother of God, and for her intercessions. Unlike the Protestant churches, it and the other Syrian churches preserve distinct in their Gospels. The Sheol and the Gana, the Sheol and the Gehenna, of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures, the Hades or intermediate state and hell. In the passage in the Gospels where our Savior comes walking on the water, Mr. Etheridge has truly translated the word phautasma, a specter and not a spirit, as our translators have done, the term showing that the Jews at that time perfectly understood the theory of ghosts. The priests praise for Those who by evil spirits are persecuted and troubled, to be defended from every attack and violence of demons. He prays for the exorcists and others who have fallen asleep. The Nestorian liturgy represents the people as drawing near with thousands of cherubims and myriads of seraphims to sanctify, adore, confess, and glorify the Lord of all. He calls on the people to join their voices to those of seraphim and archangels, and glorifies God because. Through his mercies, the earthborn have communion with the spiritual. He prays to be delivered from the evil one and his hosts, and gives thanks to that mortal men weak by nature are enabled to sanctify his name with the heavenly hosts. The Maronite liturgy approximates still more to the Roman Catholic, as does their system in the multitude of monasteries. This is, as it might be expected, in churches founded by Thomas the Apostle. Thaddeus, who performed signs and wonders amongst them, St. Peter, Chrysostom, Jerome, Leo, Innocent, and other founders and builders of the church at Antioch, Nestorius, Ignatius, Serapion, Babalus, the martyr, and Jacob Zanzala, the consolidator of the Jacobite church. It is what might be expected of churches which had Eusebius, Sozoman, and Theodore for historians, which had Ephraim of Edessa, the famous solitary, Joseph the seer of Nisibis in the 6th century, Gregory Bar Barhebrius, the chronicler of saints and patriarchs in the 13th century, and from which proceeded Simeon, the stylite, and Cosma, his biographer. The same causes render our dwelling on the spiritualism of the Greek church unnecessary. It preserves all its faith in miracles derived from its common origin with the Roman Church. The works of travelers show this amply, and the Travels in Greece of Miss Brammer, just published, record her attendance at a Greek church festival, where a miraculous picture, found by miraculous means, was exhibiting. This was in the island of Tenos. The church had been built in 1821, in consequence of the dream of a drunken schoolmaster who declared that the Panhagia, or Holy Virgin, had appeared to him in a dream, and revealed to him that, if they would dig into the foundations of the ancient temple of Poseidon, they would find a picture of her. Nobody took any notice of the man or his dream till the contagious disease broke out in 1821, when they began in earnest to delve for this promised picture. They soon came to a half-ruinous vault of a Christian church and on removing the rubbish discovered a small picture of the Annunciation of the Virgin. The picture was carried in solemn procession through the island, and it is asserted that the pestilence was forthwith stayed. It is farther affirmed that the discovery of the picture took place on the very day that the Greek independence was achieved, thus elevating the banner of the cross over the crescent. A church was therefore raised on the spot where the picture was found and the anniversary was instituted for the Christians of both the Eastern and Western churches to meet there and every year celebrate the event. Miss Bremer saw the priests touching the eyes of a young nobleman with the picture, which, she said, was evidently an ancient one. The young man was quite blind and had come very far in hopes of restoration of his sight by the operation, but that it did not take effect. Numbers of other persons afflicted with diverse complaints were crowding to the church to seek relief from the picture, and the people asserted that many cures were done through its means. She met, however, with a priest who expressed disbelief in any miracles, and in such hands no miracles were very likely to be performed. Still, the mode of the picture's discovery, and the use made of it, testify to the professed belief of the Greek church in its ancient doctrine of the miraculous powers. Dr. Thompson, who was American missionary in Palestine for twenty-five years, says, Exorcism of demons and evil spirits is still practiced, and with many superstitious rites and magical powers. But this is so common in all the ancient churches that it needs no illustration. There are many who pretend to discover thieves and stolen goods by incantations and other means. We have seen how Mr. Salt of Cario recovered his plate. He says what the means are by which... Serpent charmers act with impunity, and by which persons handle live scorpions, and even put them into their bosoms without fear or injury, are yet a secret. He adds that he has often seen small boys even put scorpions into their bosoms, notwithstanding that they are the most malignant and irascible of all reptiles. He notices the riding of dervishes over boys laid side by side flat on the ground, without their receiving any material injury and the practice is called douche and is accompanied by a multitude of magical ceremonies. He quotes the account of seeing into the ink in boy's hands in Egypt as given by Lane, says he has met with English and other gentlemen who witnessed things equally astonishing through the same celebrated magician, Abdel Kader El mugrabi and he gives us Mugrabi's formula of invocation. Torshun. Turi-o-shun, come down, come down, be present. Whither are gone the prince and his troops? Where are el-Amar, the prince and his troops? Be present, ye servants of these names. And this is the removal, and we have removed from thee the veil, and thy sight today is piercing. Correct, correct. Dr. Thompson asked a magician in Sidon whether... Turshun and Turi Oshun were known to him and employed by him, and he said they were. And Dr. Thompson adds, in short, this whole subject is involved in no small mystery. It exercises a prodigious influence on Oriental society, and always has done, and merits a thorough examination. The boys evidently see just such scenes as are depicted in the wildest stories in The Thousand Nights. And I expect that this very art was in greater perfection then than now, and that the gorgeous creations of that work were, in many cases, mere verbal pictures taken from the mirror of ink. Dr. Thompson also says that the people of the East believe that spirits or jinns watch over treasures hidden in the earth. Numbers of people are continually employed in seeking hidden treasures, and many spend their last farthing in the search. They have a notion that people of the Western nations have a knowledge of the signs by which these treasures are discovered, and the spells by which the spirits who guard them are overcome. And they therefore follow Englishmen who visit the remains of old cities and buildings, believing that they are seeking hidden treasures, and no arguments can convince them to the contrary. They will frequently offer to go partners with them in the pursuit. I will here give a remarkable instance of prophecy taking place not precisely in the Greek church, but in the region of its prevalence. Dr. Wolfe mentions in his travels that being at Aleppo in 1822, at the house of John Barker Esquire, British Consul General of Aleppo and Antioch, he was inquiring after Lady Esther Stanhope. She is crazy undoubtedly, said Mr. Baker, and he told him in proof of it that she kept in her house a French gentleman of the name of Lustenau. Who had formerly been a general of Tipo Sahib in India, and who was deemed a prophet. He had declared to Lady Esther the precise day and hour of Napoleon's escape from Elba. Mr. Barker then, in the presence of M. Lesseps, M. Derish, his interpreter, and M. Masek, the Dutch consul, read a letter of Lady Esther's, dated April 1821, begging him not to go to Aleppo or Antioch as M. Lustenau declared that both those places would be destroyed by an earthquake in about a year. The time had nearly arrived, and M. Dersch said that she had recently warned him not to go to Aleppo, for that it would be destroyed by an earthquake in less than a fortnight. These gentlemen made themselves very merry over the prophecy and dinner. A few days afterwards, Wolf quitted Aleppo in the afternoon and encamped that evening on the road to Latakia, in the desert, near the village of Jusia. As the people of Jusia were talking with Wolf and the people of his little camp, they felt the first motions of an earthquake. In another instant, the village of Josiah disappeared, being swallowed up by the gaping earth, and the thunder as of cannon came from a distance. Shock after shock succeeded, and presently came troops of wild Arabs and Bedouins, flying over the plains on their terrified horses, and with the hoods of their burnouses drawn down, crying as they fled past one after another, This is of God! This is of God! For, says Dr. Wolfe, the people of the East always come to the primal cause in everything, to God himself. They do not, as Europeans do, invariably dwell upon the second causes, but refer everything at once to the governor of the world. Wolfe immediately sent an express messenger to Aleppo, to Mr. Barker. He found the whole of Aleppo, Antioch, Latakia, Homs, and Hena had been destroyed by the earthquake, with all the villages for twenty miles around, and that sixty thousand people had been plunged at once into an awful eternity. Mr. Barker himself had escaped marvelously by creeping, with his wife and child of six years old, from beneath the ruins of their house. Amongst those who perished in the ruins of Aleppo was Ezra de Piccato, a Spanish Jew, the Austrian consul-general of Syria. He was a man detested for his tyrannies by the inhabitants of all nations. A hundred days before the earthquake, he had sent an Austrian subject out of the town in irons. A Turk, who had heard of it, coolly asked Mr. Masik to count a hundred upon the beads which he held. For, said he... On the hundredth day from this act of his tyranny, Ezra de Picote will die. This, in fact, was the hundredth day, and as M. Masek had counted the ninety-ninth bead, the earthquake came, and Picote was killed. This M. Masek told Dr. Wolfe himself, Very little can be found in Church of England writers on the Eastern Churches regarding their belief in the miraculous. They pass it over, as they do not themselves believe in it. As matter that no one cares to know of. Without this, however, no work on these churches is really of much value, and therefore the volumes of Etheridge, Appleyard, etc. are of little use in endeavoring to arrive at a sound view of the Greek, Syrian, and Russian churches. In Dr. Stanley's lectures on the Eastern Church, you find a few slight allusions to the subject, but it is to native writers that we must go for real information. In the native historians, we have already found abundant matter on this head. We may now glean the few light ears of fact which Stanley affords us. He assures us, however, and this includes all the rest, that the theology of the East has undergone no systematizing process. Its doctrines remain in the same rigid yet undefined state as that in which they were left by Constantine and Justinian. They are, in fact, the same as we have seen them in Eusebius, Socrates, Solzomen, and Evagrius. The general expectation, he says, prevails that by some unknown process, the souls of the simple will be purified before they pass into divine presence. But this has never been consolidated into a doctrine of purgatory. No, the belief of the middle state, as we see in the Syrian gospel, has been left as it existed there and amongst the Jews. Hades had not been converted into Gehenna, nor metamorphosed into a paying purgatory. At page 46, Dr. Stanley passingly says, Remember that Athos can boast its miraculous pictures and springs, no less than Remini or Assisi. Speaking of the Muslim faith, he says, The sanctity of the dead man is attested by the same means as in the Eastern churches generally. They supposed incorruptibility of the corpse. The intercession of a well-known saint is invested with peculiar potency. The frantic excitement of the old Oriental religions, says Stanley, still lingers in their modern representatives. The mad gambles of the Greek and Syrian pilgrims have been sufficiently told. That is, there are more life and active faith in these religions than in modern Protestantism. They, he tells you, assert that St. Andrew first planted the cross on the hills of Kief and foretold that a great city and many churches should arise there. Dr. Stanley quotes Sir Jerome Horsey, who wrote in 1570, I saw this impostor or magician, Nicholas of Rolkoff, a foul creature, went naked both in winter and summer. He endured both extreme heat and frost. He did many things through the magical illusions of the devil. Much followed, praised, and renowned both by prince and people. He did much good, etc. Speaking of the siege of the Trotsia Monastery near Moscow in 1613, he says, Rude pictures still represent in strange confusion the mixture of artillery and apparitions, fighting monks and fighting ghosts, which drove back the Polish assailants from the walls of the beleaguered fortress. In the story of the Russian patriarch Nikon in 1667, chiefly drawn from morafief and his banishment to the monastery of therapontov on the shores of the white lake when shut up at night in an empty house in the depth of a russian winter an old woman came up through a trapdoor and assured him that she had been shown his coming in a dream and ordered to provide all things necessary for his comfort by such repeated interpositions his fearful journey was made tolerably easy When he was about to die, one of his worst enemies, the Archimandrite Sergius, was warned of it in a dream and led to meet him and implore his forgiveness. Peter the Great, in his reforming career, declared that he would have no false miracles ascribed to holy pictures. These slight passages show that Dr. Stanley could have told us more than he has done both of the faith of the Russian and Eastern churches in the miraculous and of the abuses of this faith which priestcraft has introduced into the Greek, as well as into the Latin church. For in both there is the true and the false, as in everything else on earth. Turn now to the native historians of the Greek church, and you will find in full what Stanley and other Anglican church writers only hint at. The assertions of the miraculous stand on almost every page. Of the Greek church, as it still exists in the East, I have given as many of these proofs as my space allows. In Platon and Moravif, the historians of the Russian church, a patriarch of the Greek, they are so abundant that I shall confine myself to Moravif. As he is of our own time, he says, When the church of Georgia, now only a short time back, became an integral portion of the Russian church and empire, after having stood alone, cut off, and isolated from all other churches ever since the fourth century, there was not found to have risen in the course of 1,500 years the slightest difference between them in doctrine. No, nor even in ceremonies, but they agreed in all points with us and with the other ecumenical thrones of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, and with the other churches dependent upon the first of them. In Moldavia, Wallachia, Serbia, Montenegro, Transylvania, Illyria, and, in a word, throughout all of Slavonia. This is decisive as to the continued belief in all things which I have quoted from their ancient historians, reaching down not to the fourth century, as here noted, but to the seventh. This may save us much farther quotation. This assertion is fully supported by the Reverend R. W. Blackmore, the translator of Moravif graduate of Merton College, Oxford, and chaplain of Kronstadt to the Russian company. In his preface, he says, This history exhibits the instructive spectacle of a church, which, ever since her first foundation, has faithfully retained that creed which was at the first delivered to her, which has not altered her doctrines or her services, her rites, ceremonies, or discipline, and very slightly her internal government, and that more in form than in spirit, for nearly nine hundred years, during which long period both clergy and laity have enjoyed free access to the sublime liturgies of St. Basil and St. Chrysostom in their native tongue. Her apostolic hierarchy and priesthood, first received from Greece, she has venerated through all the periods of her history alike, and has preserved with the utmost care in all her integrity, she is always founded on her unbroken succession from the patriarchal throne of Constantinople and from the apostles themselves, proclaimed to divine authority in teaching and administering the sacrament, etc. Accordingly, throughout his history, we find M. Moraviv and his church acknowledging the metropolans, Peter, Alexis, and Jonah, as wonder workers. He tells us that his or her angel is the customary phrase in Russia. For the patron saint, after whom anyone is named, but that they also believe in guardian angels appointed to each baptized person. The church counts as its chief guardians and intercessors a considerable number of saints. The Russian Church believes firmly in the doctrines of the holy icons, pictures of saints and the virgin, in relics, the sign of the venerable cross, of tradition, of the mystery of the most pure blood and body of Christ. Of the invocation of saints and angels, the state of souls after death, and of prayers for the departed. In the time of Peter the Great, the Anglican Church made application to be admitted to unity with the Ocumenical Church and desired the Russian Patriarch to transmit their prayer to Constantinople. But the Russian prelates, having consulted, declined because the Anglican Church had heretically renounced the traditions of the Fathers the invocation of saints, and the reverencing of icons, sacred pictures. Warnings received in divine and prophetic declarations by eminent prelates, as well as cases of miraculous cure at the tombs, or from the prayers of the holy men, the successful drawings of lots laid on the altar, and like proofs of spiritual intervention, will be found numerously throughout Moraviv. And with this I may conclude the ample substantiation of my assertion of the universal credence by the Christian Church of the divine and imperishable powers of that Church. Protestantism alone having fallen from that faith. Who must not lament that a Church which has done so much to purify Christianity from the falses and corruptions which have crept into it, should have been led by the arch-enemy to run into an error which has done far more than neutralizing these great benefits, has laid the foundation of an incredulity which, under the name of philosophy, is going like a dry rot through the timbers of the whole temple of religious faith. Chapter 3. Supernatural in the Waldensian Church Separated from the Roman Church in the 4th century, protested against Romish corruptions, so-called, from their valleys. Waldenses, the earliest Protestants. Their persecutions by the princes of Savoy. MSS of their history brought to England by Sir Samuel Moreland. Historians of the Waldenses, Morland, Perrin, Brez, Leger, and Arnaud. Peter Waldo of Lyon conveys the faith to France. Continued persecutions by the popes and the Savoyard and French Princes Cromwell's Intervention Marvelous Events in Their Wars Against Their Oppressors March of Henry Arnaud Waldensian Colonies Settle in Germany Annual Allowance to Them by William III of England Wonderful Deliverances Opinion of Bernard of Clairvaux of the Waldenses The Nobla account of them by Rev. W. S. Gilley. The vaudois, or Waldenses, have furnished a topic of much contention to the ecclesiastical writers. Some have asserted that they have been a church from the days of the Apostles, continuing pure in doctrine and in constant opposition to Rome. Others, that they date only from the 12th century, and originated with a certain Peter Waldo of Lyons. Some have stated that they were only a branch of the Albigenses, and descended from the Manichaeans, who appeared at Albi, near Toulouse in Provence, in the 12th century. But the simple truth seems to be that they were from the time of Pope Sylvester, about AD 314. When the corruptions of the church became obvious, through its being constituted a state church, at that period being pure members of the church, they became a protesting party but were not for a long time afterwards absolutely separated from the Roman Church, and thus forming a separate church or sect. They protested against the assumption of a worldly power by the Pope, declared Rome the true Babylon, and the Pope Antichrist, and declared that those only who read and followed the gospel were the true Church of Christ, that there were no ranks in the Church except bishops, priests, and deacons. They protested against the mass and its ceremonies as damnable, and against all the tribes of monks and nuns, against benedictions and consecrations, against all oaths and pilgrimages, against purgatory, which they declared an invention for gain, against confession to priests, against all pictures and images in churches, against the forty days fast and fasts in general, against extreme unction against invocations of saints and prayers for the dead. In fact, they were in their creed and practice strictly primitive. Being violently persecuted by the papal church in consequence, they retired into the fastnesses of the Piedmontese Alps and there maintained themselves against their enemies. In the early part of the 12th century, they became conspicuous by the simple fact that popery had then become powerful and extremely domineering, and was determined to crush all who differed from it, wherever they could be found. Hence the terrible persecutions which continued, not only against them, but against the Albigenses in France, the Sévenois, the Huguenots, and the Lollards, and succeeding reformers in England and everywhere. The Waldenses drew their name from the valleys in which they lived. They were first called Valences, or Valdizi or Vauds, according to the French or Italian prevalence of pronunciation, the Papal Church endeavored to heap upon them, according to its custom towards all which it deemed heretics, the most base calumnies. They were represented as monsters, having four rows of teeth, hair like wild beasts, as being addicted to the most vile habits and rebels against the majesty and the Holy Church. Numerous authorities, however, both of friends and enemies, as those of Dethau, Clodius, Cecil, Coggeshall, Gerard, and others having opportunities of personal knowledge, pronounced their character for piety and purity of the most admirable kind. They were, in fact, amongst the earliest Protestants, far prior to the times of Huss, Wycliffe, and Luther, and continue so to this day. During the protectorate, Cromwell interfered to check the terrible persecutions of them by their ruler, the Duke of Savoy, and Milton not only wrote flaming letters in Cromwell's name to the Duke of Savoy, to Louis XIV of France, and to the States of Holland, but also penned that noble sonnet in their behalf, commencing, Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie bleaching on the Alpine mountains cold. Cromwell did not satisfy himself with writing and threatening, but he sent Sir Samuel Moreland to Piedmont to use personal exertions in favor of the Waldenses and to relieve their necessities. Moreland collected one and twenty volumes of MSS regarding the history and doctrines of this Israel of the Alps, which were deposited in the University of Cambridge. But of these, seven of the most important volumes were abstracted by the Catholics during the reign of James II, and are lost forever. Moreland, however, had made good use of them in his history of the church in Piedmont, and from him, Perrin Leger, who was a pastor in the Valleys in the seventeenth century, from Henry Orneau, who died the pastor of the Wurtemberg colony of the Waldenses in 1721, we derive a striking history of this noble people, whose characteristics and condition have been made more recently familiar to the British public by the Reverend Prebendary Gilly of Durham, and to foreigners by Hans Geschicht der Ketzer and Muston's Histoire de Vaudois. Peter Waldo, who has been vainly advanced to the honor of being the founder of this people in the 12th century, was no doubt a man who had visited the Waldonesian mountains and brought thence the faith to his native place, Lyon, Whence he, of course, obtained the surname Waldo, or Waldenses, and whence the doctrines of his Alpine Protestantism spread throughout the south of France. In the writings of the Waldenses, we find little mention of miracles. They were too much opposed to the teaching of Rome, too much afraid of its dogmas to touch much upon Miracle knowing that Rome was by that time too apt to mingle fable with the truth. It is not, therefore, in their writings that we are to look for miracle, so much as in their history. That history was one of continued persecution for four long centuries, and of frequent deliverances of so striking a kind that the narrators of them are compelled to exclaim that they are divine. The persecutions which had paused for some time were renewed in 1400 with increased fury. In 1487, Pope Innocent VIII issued a bull against them, and his legate, with 18,000 men supplied by the Duke of Savoy and the King of France, committed many horrible atrocities in the valleys of Lucerne and Grogne and other places. In 1550, the Marchioness of Saluzzo, Margaret de Foix, perpetrated a monstrous amount of devil work in her territories. Francis I of France, making himself master of Piedmont in 1534, continued this devil work in God's name. This was perpetrated on his own subjects when Duke Emmanuel Philibert regained his estates under a certain Earl of the Trinity. Of all men, and raged on under the instigations of the Pope, and of a society founded in 1650 for the propagation of faith and extirpation of heresy. Till 1658, under such horrors of extermination, their valleys desolated with fire and sword, women dishonored, ripped up with swords, children stuck on spears and hurled down rocks, etc., that Cromwell and other Protestant princes were compelled to interfere. These interventions, however, produced little effect. Victor Amadius II, their sovereign, incited by Louis XIV of France, pursued them with horrible ferocity. In these wars of extermination, this Christian people performed deeds which resemble nothing but the marvelous acts of the Jews, under the direct guidance of God. On one occasion, only seventeen men, of whom six only were armed with slings, drove before them enemies fifty times more numerous. They defended the little hamlet of Rora, consisting of but fifty houses, for some time against the combined attack of ten thousand men, and, when no longer able to resist this overwhelming force, made good their retreat. At another time, being compelled to march in the night, they had to wrap their guides in white sheets that they might discern them, and in this manner they proceeded along the faces of the most frightful precipices, and carrying their wounded on horseback, along this terrifying path. Yet all escaped in safety. When by daylight they saw over what awful places they had passed, they were terrified at the view. And Leger, their pastor, says anyone who had not been in the transit would treat the whole recital as a fiction. Frequently they succeeded in sallying from the rocks and caverns in which their enemies were endeavoring to suffocate them with smoke, burning wet straw or bushwood, or to burn them alive in their retreats and chased them down headlong into the plains, till the French and Savoyard troops declared they must be aided by God. But in April 1686, the united power of France and Savoy made a tremendous onset on the unhappy people, and so completely conquered them that, after two days' hard and unequal contest, the Waldenses laid down their arms and sued for mercy. Fourteen thousand of them, says Arnaud, their gallant leader and pastor were thrust into the prisons, which were glutted with them. And there he asserts that no fewer than eleven thousand perished of cold, of heat, of hunger, of thirst, and all the miseries accompanying them. Only three thousand of the fourteen thousand issued out alive. Those who had refused to submit dispersed themselves into Switzerland and the Protestant states of Germany, Wurtemberg, Durlach, Hesse, Darmstadt, and Brandenburg. There was one little band of less than nine hundred men which determined to return and fight their way into their own mountains. This was headed by Henry Arnault, their pastor. In the night betwixt August 16th and 17th, 1689, they crossed the Lake of Geneva in boats and commenced a march which, to all human calculation, could only be to certain destruction. They had to cross snow capped mountains and thread passes through a country swarming with hostile troops. French, Swiss, Savoyard, Catholics. Did they escape? There was at least a fifteen days probable march, and a host of inveterate enemies to receive them. Arnaud, in reviewing this wonderful march as admirable, though not so long as the retreat of Xenophon, cannot help exclaiming in wonder. He expresses his wonder that he did not fall into the hands of the Catholic Swiss, who were on the lookout to seize and carry him to Constance, to burn him as the Austrians had burnt Huss and Jerome of Prague. Equal wonder how they managed to force passes against countless enemies, where a few hundred men might have defied thousands. How, with a little band, covered only with rags, and subsisting on the most scanty and wretched fare, he cut his way through the lately victorious bands of France, Switzerland, and Savoy. Is it not wonderful, he asks, that such a handful of starving men, few of whom had ever handled a musket, forced the passage of the bridge of St. against 2,500 well-entrenched men, killing 600 of them and losing only 14 or 15, of whom more than eight were shot through the inexperience of their comrades? Who is so dull, he asks, as not to see that God alone could give victory to a mere parcel of men? without money and almost without arms, against the king of France, before whom all Europe trembled, and whose banner the Pope had blessed in certain assurance of triumph. Who could be stupid enough to ascribe it to nature, and not to a divine providence, that the people of the valleys had not in summer reaped their crops, but found on their return to the valley of St. Martin, bread, wine, meat, rice, legumes, flour, corn, cut and uncut, their gardens in fine condition, and a plentiful gathering of chestnuts and grapes, and moreover, that the corn which they were not able to cut in time was preserved under the snow. Through a long and hard winter, till the following January, February, and even May, without being spoiled. Can anyone believe that about 367 people of the valley of Balsil had been able, on a diet of herbs, beans, and water, and lying on straw, to resist 10,000 French, and 12,000 Piedmontese, who had besieged them, not only with abundance of arms, ammunition, provisions, and everything, and who had brought mules loaded with ropes to hang them with, and had done this by any other power than the direct power of God, who was the king of kings, and jealous of his honor, that the Waldenses fought more than eighteen battles against these swarming hosts which had penetrated into their valleys, destroyed above ten thousand of them in their march of nine days, yet lost only about seventy of themselves, and that at length their unnatural ruler should be compelled to seek the aid of the very men whom he had thus hunted down, whose fields and houses he had burnt, and whom he had given up as prey to the French and papal commissioners. This last event was occasioned by the French and Amadeus II, coming to open feud and war. Thus the miserable duke sought humbly to these his outraged subjects, to save him from the very hell hounds that he had turned loose on them. Thus this despicable duke published in all haste an edict in May 1694, by which he restored the Waldenses to all their property and rights, and gave them full freedom of religion. Then he whiningly told them that, if they would be true to their duke as they had been to their god, He would love and cherish them as dear children. The loyal people joined his standard, helped him to beat back his most formidable foe, and were immediately rewarded for their gallant conduct by being deprived again of all rights. And all who were not born in the valleys were ordered, on pain of death, to quit them within two months. The number of these amounted to three thousand. They were driven away in the most destitute condition. And the noble Arnaud volunteered to lead them into the Protestant countries. They marched to Geneva and thence into Prussia, Hesse Castle, Hesse Darmstadt, Wurttemberg, and other states where lands and villages were assigned them. And there they remain as Waldensian colonies to this day. For many years they received a considerable money allowance from England, the English government also paying annually 250 for the support of 13 pastors in the valleys of Piedmont. Arnault received a pension from England and was made a colonel of the British army by William III. He died the head of the Wurttemberg colony in 1721. It is only in very recent times that the Waldenses have received decent treatment from their own government, but their faith is now rapidly revolutionizing the north of Italy. Such was the spiritualism of the Waldenses, well, might Arnaud declare that the interpositions of God on their behalf were non salument extraordinaires, mem supernaturals. Well, may Leger, their historian, declare their deliverances as most miraculous. On one occasion, he says, they were carried off in great numbers from their harvest fields and cast into different prisons. But their enemies, to their unbounded astonishment, soon found them all at liberty again, equally to the amazement of the captives themselves, who knew nothing of the arrest of their fellows in different places at the same time, and were set free again, miraculously and in a wonderful manner. It was of this miraculously preserved church that even the Venerable St. Bernard of Clairvaux, in 1140, said, There is a sect which calls itself after no man's name, which affects to be in the direct line of the apostolic succession, and rustic and unlearned though it is, yet it contends that we are wrong and that it is only right. And he adds in the true spirit of Catholic priests of today, as expressed towards spiritualism, it must derive its origin from the devil, since there is no other extraction which we can assign to it. What their faith was the great Bernard might have read in the Noble Lesson, the poem expounding their doctrines and extant at least forty years before this people, whose origin was thus charitably ascribed to Satan, is now being held as especial favourites of the Church of England, and has wrung from one of its members William Stephen Gilley, Prebendary of Durham, otherwise so incognizant of the miraculous this sentence. It was the will of God that they should be left as a remnant, because it was written in the councils of heaven that they should continue as a miracle of divine grace and providence. Chapter 4 The Supernatural Amongst the So-Called Heretics and Mystics of the Middle Ages The so-called heretics of all ages, Manichaeans, Pelagians, Montanists, Flagellants, Anabaptists, etc., all had faith in the miraculous. Instances of fools predicting Basilicus, Klaus at Weimar, Bodin, Angevin's account of a priest announcing a distant battle in his sermon at Perus, similar occurrence at Apollonius, at Ephesus during a lecture, prophetic woman during the persecution of AD 260, the shepherdess of Krat, account by Fernelius of a young nobleman, during convulsions, speaking Greek, though he had never learned it. Mode of accounting for such phenomena by magnetism, hallucination, and illusion. These reasoners recommended to try hallucination and illusion for the teaching of the Greek. Cures and prescience resulting from apparently inadequate causes, as the cure of Mademoiselle Perrier and Aspasia in ancient Greece. Singular facts from Cotton Mather and Olaus Magnus, the real operative principle to be sought deeper. This principle Alex Magna of the universe. It is universal and irresistible, its appearances in churches and heresies. We must choose the good or evil of it, the albigenses and other sects, the apostolicers, beggars, and pogines. Brethren of the full spirit and brethren of the free spirit, persecuted by the Roman Church. Bulls issued by the popes against them. Many of them burnt in Germany, the Netherlands, France, and Savoy. Sustrane, conventule, Luciferists, Adamites, tulipans, lollards. The cruciferi, the flagellants and Dancers, Eckhart's Doctrines in Death, The Friends of God, Suso, Toller, Roman Merswin, Heinrich of Nordlingen, Nicholas of Basel, Bertold of Robrock, The Winklers, Nicholas predicts the schism of the popedom and death of Gregory XI, Nicholas put to death, Corruption of the Church, Approach of the Reformation That effect, that sanguinary struggle with which humanity wrestling, so to speak, against itself, seizes one by one the most necessary truths, the bad grace with which it is done, and the incapacity of not doing otherwise, indicate two things at once. The first, that man cannot do without the truth. The second, that he is not in fellowship with the truth. But truth is one, and all those truths, successively discovered, are only parts, or diverse applications of it. Venet's Vital Christianity, page 72. But if, as the times go, one but utter such words, immediately we hear from a distance the dull but ever-approaching sound of the alarm drum, like the dust on the roads, a swarm of people aroused into a furious whirlwind, Father and grandfather and their children and children's children come running in hot haste, all shrieking mysticism, superstition, priestcraft, monks' cheatery, down with mysticism. Besides the Waldenses, there were numbers of other so called heretics, so called by the Roman Church. In every age of the Church, these so called heretics have abounded, from the earliest Manichaeans, Pelagians, and Montanists. To the Flagellants and the Anabaptists of Westphalia, the idea which numbers of writers have employed to account for these manifestations, that they result from mere delusion, from excited imaginations and hallucinations, is the shallowest of ideas, the result of the profoundest ignorance of the human soul. The cause assumed is utterly inadequate to the production of the effects. It is an attempt to raise a fountain higher than the springhead. In the worst of these demonstrations, things have been done and prophecies enunciated with nothing but a spiritual power, seeing farther than man sees, could originate. It is not the property of disease and delusion to strike out truths, and truths lying often buried in the depth of years and distances. I have produced too many instances of such things arising out of the most disorderly spiritualism in every age and in every country to make it requisite to reproduce them here. Even fools, so-called, have often astonished the so-called wisest and soberest men by their flashes of superhuman knowledge. Take ancient or modern times. We find it the same. Nasitas Gonietas, relates in his life of Isaac Angelus that when the emperor was at Rodostes, he paid a visit to a man called Basilicus, who had the reputation of possessing the faculty of seeing into futurity, but who was otherwise regarded by all sensible persons as a fool. Basilicus received the emperor without any particular marks of respect, and returned no answer to his questions. Instead of doing so, he walked towards the emperor's picture, which hung in the apartment, scratched out the eyes with his staff, and attempted to strike the hat from his head. The emperor took his leave setting him down as a perfect fool. Nevertheless, all that Basilicus intimated came to pass. The emperor was deposed in a rebellion, and his brother Alexis, being placed on the throne, put out his eyes. Klaus, the court fool at Weimar, rushed into the council room on one occasion, as the council was sitting, exclaiming, There you all are, consulting, no doubt, about very important matters, but nobody gives a thought about the fire at Colmar and how it is to be extinguished. On the arrival of the mail, it was found at that moment an alarming fire was raging at Colmar. How did these fools come at knowledge which none of the wise could pretend to? To say that it was the result of their foolishness would be to confound all human ideas. It was clearly no delusion in either case. It was no hallucination, but a reception of a fact from some spiritual source. As certain as that is the most orthodox prophecy. And what is curious, the sane and the learned receive precisely the same sudden and unerring oracles. At Perus, in 1616, says Baudet Angevin in his Demonomen des Sorciers, a priest of the name of Jacques one day was celebrating Mass, turned round to the people, and instead of saying, Orate frater, he exclaimed, Oret pro castris, ecclesia, collaborant in extremis. Pray for the army of the church, which is in extreme peril. And at that moment that he was speaking, the army in question was defeated about 25 leagues from Perus. It was under similar circumstances that Apollonius of Tyana, in the midst of a lecture at Ephesus, announced the death of Dominician at Rome. Even in what appears as disease, the patients speak things that no disease can teach. In St. Cyprian's epistles we find Fermilianus writing to him that when all the faithful took to flight in the persecution, A.D. 260, a woman suddenly appeared who fell into fits of ecstasy, in which she showed herself a wonderful prophetess. She not only foretold extraordinary things which came true, but she did marvelous things and performed real miracles. But these fathers did not foolishly imagine that her abnormal state was mere disease, or that miracles done and true prophecies made could result from hallucination, that illusion could be the parent of truth. They were incapable of any such shallow logic. They at once attributed the effects to spirits, and the woman asserted the same thing. In the pastoral letters of Jurio, we have an extraordinary account of a young girl amongst the Protestants of the south of France who was about seventeen years of age, and was known by the name of the Shepherdess of Cret. She fell frequently into ecstasies and convulsions, and a deep accompanying sleep, in which she uttered the most striking and real predictions. And though she was ill-educated and spoke of a wretched patois in her waking state, in these sleeps she spoke excellent French. She recollected nothing of what she had said after being awoke. She was a clairvoyant exhibiting the exact phenomena of clairvoyance of today. She was a mystic, according to Gore as his classification, of the lower or natural order, as distinguished from the higher class of mysticism, the spiritual revelation which ascends above all natural causes and is in communion with purified spirits, not with lower spirits, but with God himself, or the highest and holiest of his angels. Fernelius gives the account of a young gentleman who was attacked by convulsions which came on him several times a day. As these fits proceeded, he became very clairvoyant in them, began to speak in Latin and Greek, though he was thoroughly ignorant of Greek. He read the thoughts of everyone about him and rallied the physicians on their ignorance of his complaint and their absurd remedies. He asserted, That a spirit gave him the knowledge and language which he clearly had not from any natural source. Yet the magnetists satisfy themselves that magnetism will explain all. In fact, that magnetism can teach a man in a moment not only to understand, but to speak Latin and Greek. In scores of cases, such patients have spoken learned languages, in the which cases there were abundance of such instances. If this explanation be true, Why do not the magnetists introduce magnetism at once into our classical schools, and save our poor lads a world of crucifying labor? If illusion can teach languages, why not our wise literary and scientific men introduce illusion to the schools, which is obviously a much more efficient teacher than all the ordinary masters put together? What matters it by what means our children are endowed with the full mastery of the classics, whether it be by magnetism or illusion or hallucination. If these can give that in one hour, which Dr. Birch and the Reverend Prosody, long labor, take seven years to do at Harrow or Eton. It is amazing to find people who have such glib and offhand explanations of wonderful effects, taking no pains to give us the practical advantage of their discoveries. We find the apparently most ridiculous means producing most astonishing ends. The niece of Pascal was undoubtedly cured of an otherwise incurable disease by the touch of a thorn called holly. Some of the most otherwise incurable cases were cured at once by the wiping with a napkin brought from the tomb of the Abbey Paris. As people were cured by napkins and handkerchiefs taken from the body of St. Paul, Cotton Mather and his Magnalia Christi Amicana says nothing was so common for the old set of Quakers as to proselytize people by merely stroking or breathing upon them. It was the same in the pagan world, causes as apparently trivial or foolish produced effects out of all proportion to them. Laplanders, according to Olus Magnus, fell asleep after certain ceremonies when required to obtain exact information from far distant places or countries and after perhaps twenty-four hours of such profound sleep, woke up, assured the inquirers that they had been at the place, seen the persons required, and brought certain information, which rarely, if ever, was found to be untrue. Elian, in his variae, historie, etc., says that the celebrated Aspasia had, when very young, a tumor on the face which extended below the chin, and thoroughly disfigured her, Her father refused to pay the sum demanded by the physicians for her cure, and Aspasia, in an agony of distress, retired to her room, bewailing her fate. There fell asleep and dreamed that a dove appeared to her, gradually assuming the form of a woman, who bade her to be of good courage, to despise the physicians, and pulverize and apply the powder of the roses in one of the wreaths hung on the statue of Venus, and she should be cured. She did so, and was not only cured, but became gradually so beautiful that she enchanted all men and became queen of Persia. What shall we say, then, to all these things which are scattered thickly over the whole mass of history and literature, sacred and profane, Christian and pagan? If, I repeat, the theory of there being illusions, or that diseases can do these wonders and inspire prophecies... If imagination, that darling resource of so many soi philosophers, can affect them in the name of common sense, why do they not abandon science and physic and hard years of study, and betake themselves to imagination and illusion and disease, which, according to their own showing, are far more potent than health and reason, philosophy and science? But they do not resort to these agencies, so promptly and continually invoked to help them out of their difficulties, and never will, simply because they know in their own souls that they are mere shams brought forward to conceal their ignorance. We must therefore look to some other and really adequate cause of the ever-recurring, ever-extending phenomena called miraculous. And this brings us back to the old and the only paramount cause, spirit operating on spirit encased in matter. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, Christ said to Nicodemus. But that great master in Israel found it hard to understand this. Like the fathers of Israel, says Dr. Anamoser, the new fathers do not willingly take cognizance of things which are not a part of their faith, and which are out of their horizon, whether temporal or heavenly things be in question. We must, therefore, leave the new fathers, the Nicodemuses of today, and draw from all history a cause more potent than their causes to unlock the mystery of miracle, which arises again and again in the successive generations as surely as the sun rises and the winds blow. We find, then, a great spiritual power, the lex magna of the universe, as fixed and permanent and omnipotent as the law of specific gravity itself operating on the human mind in every age and country, and under every variety of circumstance. No human force can suppress it, though it may distort it. It comes forth like light and darkness with features of good and evil. It stands forward in prophets and inspired warriors, sublime, clear as the sun, and irresistible as its beams. It speaks, and distant ages hear it. It acts, and nature takes the impression of its blows. God descends and wields infinite power. Apostles and martyrs follow in triumph over kings and hierarchies, over mind and matter, even in subjection and in death. Churches arise, and even in their corruption and in human pride work signs and wonders. They stamp on pure spirit and pure conscience. They endeavor to crush out all opposition to their boasted self-will, by fire and dungeons and desolating arms. And the same spiritual potence bursts forth in the varied shapes of heresy, of damnable doctrines, and even of devilry confessed. The great spiritual power is a power residing in good and evil agents, in God and his hierarchies, in the devil and his legions. The combat of sin and soul are going on forever, and exhibit their effects over all this beautiful but serpent-haunted and blood-stained earth. Where faith and religion triumph, the malignant and envious spirits of darkness seek to undermine and corrupt. They push prosperity into pride and despotism, into sensuality and voluptuousness, tending to rottenness. They rouse the venom of vengeance in the powers which have changed from holy to unholy, to stamp out the fires of denunciation and reform, which begin to kindle under their feet, to crush the purer souls who cry for God and truth. Hence arise sects and heresies. Hence the mystic incensed by outrageous denunciation rushes forward into dangerous utterances, into paradoxes from which develop licentious falsities as surely as fungus is developed from the fermentation of decaying wood. You cannot check the invincible operation of this lex magna of the universe. It will burst up ever and anon through the dry crust of petrified society as under-swelling floods burst up the ice cover of frozen rivers. It will burst up in good or evil, in truth or fanaticism. It is there, mighty, vast, untamable, diffused through all things, through mind and matter, as universally as the electric principle. Whether you notice it or not, whether you repudiate it, ignore it, or treat it as a disease and delusion, it will appear amongst you as an inevitable apparition laughing at your theories, throwing down your philosophies, and shattering your churches. It must and will exert itself in utter contempt of learned dogmas, of church creeds. It wrecks, not whether it be denied or admitted, but in proportion, as it is coerced or recognized, it will produce blessings or monstrosities. Like the pent-up gases of the world's interior, it will make itself felt in moral earthquakes or shown itself in blazing volcanoes of crime and fanaticism. If it cannot steal freely through fissures and earth pores, and fructify the roots of tree and herb. Thus it has ever been, from the days of the Manichaeans to those of the Mormons. Whether it be good or evil, it is all spiritualism. And it is most important that men should recognize its real nature. And instead of mocking at it, endeavor to open the eyes of the multitude to discern that nature, too. To teach them that it is about them as sure as God and the devil exist, and operate unperceived around us and within us. That we may open up our souls to one or the other, to our infinite hurt or advantage. But that, whether we cultivate or reject, this great eternal principle and its conflicting elements will operate upon us, whether we will or not. We may turn our backs on the sun, that will not prevent his shining. We may shut our eyes to the tempest, but that will not chain the winds or arrest the forked lightning. Good and evil are set before us. We may choose which we will. Spiritualism is upon us. We may have its good or evil. We cannot, by any abjuration of it, exempt ourselves from its influences, any more than we can from that of time bringing age and death. Let us now notice the progress of this great power in and around the churches during the ages preceding the Reformation. Besides the Albigenses, who were so fearfully persecuted and exterminated in the 12th and 13th centuries, the south of France had also its Waldenses, or poor men of Lyon, the followers of Peter Waldo, called also insabbatati, or people wearing sabbats or wooden shoes, on which they are said to have had the sign of the cross to distinguish them from other peasants not of their faith. These also had their plentiful persecutions. These had been preceded by the sects of Peter de Bruys of Heinrich, of Wudo de Stalla of Brittany, and Trenchelin of Utrecht in the Netherlands in the 12th century. All these sects were equally opposed to the corruptions of the Church of Rome though differing in many points from one another. they Most of them rejected fasts, priestly confessions, oaths, purgatory, priestly absolution, the authority of the Pope, the celibacy of the clergy, the extreme unction. Many of them denied the lawfulness of capital punishments and of war by Christians. All were spiritualists, holding that the ancient power of Christianity remained amongst true disciples. Of this character especially were the apostolicers, who may be regarded as a section of the French Waldenses, though arising in Italy. The founder of this sect was Gerhard Segarelli of Parma, who instituted it in 1260, which thence spread into France, Spain, Germany, and England. Segarelli was burnt for his heresy in 1300, but his place was supplied by the disciple Told Dolcino of Novara, who spread the faith in the Tyrol and Dalmatia, and was also put to death by the papal authorities in 1307. In their doctrines, they condemned the corruptions of the Church of Rome, and declared that the Church of Christ, in its purity, possessed the power of the Apostles, and the spirit of prophecy and of revelation, that oaths, persecutions, and papal assumptions are deadly sins. The gospel is the only creed of true believers. Allied to the apostolicers are the beggars and Beguinen, who, however, took their rise in the 11th century and spread through the Netherlands, Germany, France, and other countries. They were so-called, from the old Saxon term begin, the same as the German Bitten, to pray. They were thus literally praying brethren. They lived in large houses called Beguinages though not bound together by any oath or belonging to any particular monkish order. There were also associations of women who lived together in the same manner. Some of these remained in the Romish church and continue to the present day. Others were pronounced heretical and were exterminated or dispersed. From these sprang two great sects, the brothers and sisters of the full spirit or fraticelli, and the brethren and sisters of the free spirit of whom the Lollards were an offshoot. The Brethren of the Full Spirit prevailed chiefly in the south of France, Italy, and Sicily. They seemed to have amalgamated themselves in a great degree with the Tertianis, or Franciscans. Like the Franciscans, they bound themselves to obedience, chastity, and poverty. They denied that the Pope or any other power of the Church had any right to interfere with their ordinances, or to absolve any of them from their oaths. They believed that the reform of the church must proceed from them, that a new outpouring of the Holy Ghost would take place on them, as great and abundant as the first, and that through them the world would be eventually converted, and so filled with love that the faithful would exceed even the apostles in virtue and grace. That they had ear this, however, to fight the great fight with Antichrist as it had been revealed to St. Francis. The Brethren and Sisters of the Free Spirit appear to have arisen at Cologne in 1210. Amorik von Bina has been named as their founder by Gisler. But Hahn thinks this improbable and not demonstrated. Amorik, however, held the mystical pantheistic notions afterwards ascribed to Eckhart, who unquestionably belonged to this body. He believed in the perfectibility of man by the union with God and the Spirit of Christ and that no happiness was possible except through this union. A genuine Christian Buddhism, which he partook with the ancient Anchorites and also with St. Paul. But this doctrine was not held by him, as by too many of the Brethren and Sisters of the Free Spirit, as a warrant for all sorts of licentiousness. The sect became more prominent nearly thirty years later, namely in 1238, when Albertus Magnus noticed it in Cologne. In 1261, they excited several convents and monasteries in Swabia to break their rules, as inconsistent with spiritual freedom. In 1292, under the general name of Bagardos and Bagardas, their proceedings were condemned, and in 1306, the Archbishop of Cologne issued an edict against them. He charged them with preaching that God himself would someday cease to exist. That any one was at liberty to abandon his wife in order to follow God more strictly, but that as those who were blessed by the spirit of God were no longer under the law, they were at liberty to indulge their appetites as they pleased, or, as Hudibras expresses it, for saints may do the same things by the spirit and sincerity which other men are tempted to, and at the devil's instance do, and yet the actions be contrary, just as the saints and wicked vary. They begged, bread in the name of God, and were therefore nicknamed Bread Through God. They wore a particular dress and had a particular system of associated life. Whether they carried their licentiousness so far as their papal enemies asserted may in many cases be well doubted, but it is probable that there were some of them who used their Christian liberty in a genuine sense as a liberty in God a freedom through the power of His Spirit from vice and the temptations to vice, and another and a large section who were led by their lusts to wrest the doctrine of St. Paul, that they who are in Christ are no longer under the law, into an assumed character for the commission of any crime whatever. These declared that man, becoming perfect, could do anything without doing it sinfully, a sophism which only the devil and the flesh could make possible. A great deal of licentiousness would have passed into that corrupt age with the Church. But as the beggars and brethren of the free bands set themselves to denounce the sacraments of Romanism, they were fiercely assaulted by its authorities, and many of them were burnt in the different countries into which they had spread themselves. Saxony, Hesse, Thuringia, the Netherlands, etc. They appealed to the Pope at Avignon, John the Twenty-second but he confirmed the decrees against them and condemned 26 articles of opinion of the famous Master Eckhart of Cologne. Eckhart will claim our attention again particularly, but just now we may follow the disorderly spiritualism of this sect to its farther issues. The great headquarters of the sect remained in Cologne, but its archbishops continued such a war upon them that, about 1357, they fled from that city and spread themselves over the north of Germany. There, at Constance and in the Netherlands, in France, and Savoy, they were persecuted, and many famous men and professors burnt. Bulls were issued by Pope Urban V, Boniface the and Gregory the Eleventh against them, on which both beggars and beggins or suaroni conventuale conventual sisters were painted in blackest colours. Still more heretical sects sprang out of them, as the Luciferists Adamites turlepins, etc. The Luciferists maintained that Lucifer, after his battle with the Michael, the archangel, was restored to heaven and all his glory. The Adamites held the same doctrine, and all these sects held that the Virgin Mary was not an object of worship, and that the Church of Rome was a fallen church. The Lollards were frequently confounded with these, but unjustly. They acquired the name of Lollards from the Flemish word Lollen or Lollen to sing in a muffled undertone, as they did in burying those who died of the plague in Antwerp in 1300. License having been carried to its extreme by the wild section of the brethren of the free spirit, there arose another fashion of people, the penitents, who declared that God was angered at the sins of the world and must be appeased. To effect this object, they commenced a system of the most astonishing self-chastisements. They regarded the great plague which ravaged both Europe and Asia in 1348 as the manifest sign of God's wrath. And from this date, they commenced their fearful discipline. They went about naked to the waist, cutting themselves with wire-lashed scourges, till they ran down with blood, and at the same time singing the hymn of the Last Judgment. Dizere, Dizela, weeping and groaning piteously at the same time. They obtained the names of Cruciferi, Crucifratres, Flagellatores, Veberantes, Pusserer, or Busser. They declared that an angel had brought them a letter commanding these self-inflictions, and they published this letter, one of a considerable length. An army of flagellants made their appearance at Avignon and called on Pope Clement the Sixth to submit himself to the same discipline. But he not only refused but commanded them to seize their processions, under pain of excommunication. But the papal bull did not stop the flagellants, nor could all the severity of the Inquisition. They spread into Italy, where seventy thousand at one time appeared, including in their ranks princes, bishops. Clergy of various ranks and monks. Boniface IX caused their leader to be seized and burnt alive, and they were scattered by main force. But other armies appeared in Germany, where other burnings took place and fresh dispersions by military. In the beginning of the 15th century, Vincent Ferreri, a Spanish Dominican of great popularity, led a great troop of flagellants through Spain, France, and Upper Italy. Nor did this extraordinary manifestation totally disappear from Europe till 1481, having lasted 132 years. Contemporary with the flagellants were the dancers. They appeared in 1374 on the Rhine and in the Netherlands, and continued till 1418, for the greater part of half a century. They appeared like the ancient bacanti, half naked and with garlands on their heads. Driven, say the old writers, and plagued by demons. Not only in the open air, but in churches and houses, they danced their wild dances, men and women, and in their hymns used the names of a thereto unheard of demons. Enormous licentiousness resulted from this dancing mania, and as it was attributed to possession by demons, exorcism was diligently applied, and the aid of St. Vitus, famous for dancing, was on the Homeopathic principle invoked to put it down. The dancers, like the other sects, called loudly for a new church, a church of the Spirit. Other sects, as the pastorals, which lasted 70 years or more of the same era, joined in the cry for the removal of the corrupt church and for a new one. And they did their best to put the Roman church down by killing the priests and plundering the monasteries, and were only subdued by the soldiery. In the meantime, whilst the demon powers were thus taking advantage of the condition and the coercive domination of the church, to urge men into a delirium of sin and blasphemy mingled with cries for a new order of things, a new order was silently springing up in the souls of men who were seeking for the kingdom of heaven, not from without, but as Christ had taught them to seek it, within. Within. The papal hierarchy was seized suddenly with consternation by learning that the renowned master Eckhart had joined the sect of the Brothers of the Free Spirit. was become, in the words of Schmidt in his Studien und Kritiken, their amicus epitrinus. Eckhart, the celebrated teacher of Aristotle and Plato, doctor of theology, formerly professor of the science in Paris, and now provincial of the Dominicans at Cologne, had not only joined this heretical sect, but had put forth six and twenty propositions, not only asserting but farther developing their doctrines. These Henry, the Archbishop of Cologne, condemned, and on the Brethren appealing to Pope John XXII, then at Avignon, he confirmed the condemnation by an edict in A.D. 1330 of the first fifteen as heretical and of two others beyond the six and twenty, also ascribed to Eckhart. Before the issue of this edict, Eckhart had recalled his propositions, and was dead. The propositions, nevertheless, were accepted by the brethren, and as we have seen, some of them rested to their own corrupt purposes by the wild and sensual. Master Eckhart's propositions were in substance as follows. Being asked why God did not create the world sooner, he replied, God cannot produce the world at first, because a thing cannot act until it is. Whence no sooner was God than he created the world. And hence we may infer that the world was eternal. God cannot be without the world. It is his other self, and eternal with him. God brings forth his Son continually. For the producing his Son is the speaking forth his creative power, and he speaks all things in him. All created entities, from the highest angel to the humblest spider, are one in the first origin of things. They who love, not honor, nor usefulness, nor inward devotion, nor reward, nor the kingdom of heaven. They out of whom all these things are gone. Yet of these people God still has honor, and they pay him what is his own. I thought lately whether it were a good to desire or accept anything from God, and I am anxious still to deliberate earnestly on this. Because if I accept from God... I place myself under him as a servant or a slave. And he himself becomes a lord over me by the very act of giving, and thus we ought not to be in the eternal life. As in the sacrament the bread is wholly changed into the body of our Lord, so shall I be changed into him, as he operates in me his own being, the same and not merely like. Whatever God the Father has given to his only begotten Son in human nature, he has given as fully to me whatever the sacred scriptures say of Christ, they say of every good and divine man. Men ask, how can man work with God the works which he did thousands of years ago? And they understand not that in eternity there is neither before nor after, and therefore all that God worked thousands of years ago and is yet working is nothing but a work in eternity. And so the man who is in eternity works all these works, for he is one with God in the same. I am in God. Therefore, he who takes not these works from God, takes them not from me. I cannot be shut out from them. or God, with whom I am one, must be shut out. The Father rests not. Therefore, it is of necessity that the Son is born in me. He operates and strives in me at all times, that I may be as the Son to him. The man who exists in God conforms himself to the will of God. He will not have it otherwise since what is of God is the will of God. Some people fast, others eat, some watch, others sleep, some pray, others are silent. But they who practice internal devotion derive more advantage in a moment than through all the outer works that they can work. Or as God produces His Son in me, I myself am that Son and no other. God begets the Son in the soul in the same manner as He beget Him in eternity, and not otherwise. God is one in all modes, and according to all reason, and without distinction. For he who sees things sees not God. God is one without number and above number, without intellect and above intellect. No distinction can possibly be comprehended in God. All creatures are absolutely nothing. I say not that they are small, or that they are not, but they are an absolute nothing. There is something in the mind which is uncreated and uncreatable the whole mind were such, it would be altogether uncreated and uncreatable. And this is intellect. God is neither good nor better nor best. He who says that God is good does him as much injustice as to say that white is black. I give these propositions because not only a great theological school was based on them, called the Friends of God, but because they have had and continue to have a deep influence on the theological metaphysics. Hegel had asserted in his Lectures on Religion that Master Eckhart had penetrated to the very depths of religious philosophy, and Martin Sen, in his works and Bauer in the Tubingen Yearbook of 1843 declared that he was not only the father of German mysticism, but by anticipation of modern theologic speculation. From these propositions we see at once that Eckhart's was a mine of the intensest metaphysical nature. And such minds love to push profound psychological propositions into utter paradox, and in seeing to sound the abysses of thought, emerge at the antipodes, wrapped in the cobwebs of the incomprehensible, and swart with the nether flames of blasphemy. So at least Eckhart will appear to the general religious mind. Yet in his sermons he explained these propositions so as to deprive them of much of their startling audacity. And it will be observed that he limited their operation by declaring that whoever becomes one with God conforms, by consequence, his will to the will of God. It suited the sensual to overleap this limitation. And hence the worst portion of the brethren of the free spirit rendered Eckhart's doctrines thus. Becoming one with God, we are invested with the liberty of God. To God all things are lawful, and therefore to us who are in God, and one with him. All things are lawful. Master Eckhart says there can be no distinction or difference to things to God. All are one. Therefore, there is no distinction or difference of things to us. All are one to us. And there were three or four propositions included amongst these condemned by the Pope, so outrageous that Martinson and others imagined them to have been foisted in by enemies, who regarded them as the legitimate results of his propositions namely, Articles 4th, 5th, and 6th, which assert in every work, whether good or bad, God is equally glorified, that whoever vituperates God praises him. And the more he vituperates, and the greater the sin, the more he praises God. And again, the 15th, 16th, and 17th, which assert that if a man commit a thousand sins, if such a man were rightly disposed, he ought not to desire not to have committed them, and that this is true repentance." that God does not particularly regard outward actions, that an outward act is not properly good, nor divine, nor is it, properly speaking, originated by God. Whether, however, these propositions are really part of those of Eckhart, as Mosheim, Ullmann, Haas, Giesler, Bauer, Schmidt, Thompson, and other German theologians contend they are, The rest are sufficiently daring and dangerous to repel the generality of readers from his teaching. Yet, stripped of their more extravagant dialecticisms, they probably meant no more in the mind of Eckhart than that Christian Buddhism common to all mystics, and which, in fact, is founded in the teaching of Christ and of St. Paul. That the soul may become so purified that it shall retain nothing but what is absolutely divine, absolutely that which is brought from God and carries back to Him. That in this pure and perfect unity of nature with God, it acquires the perfect liberty of God. That this liberty is not a liberty to commit sin, as the sensual interpret it, but is a perfect liberty and freedom from all sin and power of sin that it can do nothing but what is pure and holy, because it has nothing left in it but what is pure and holy. It is in that state to which the Buddhist aspires, and to which the solitaires of the early church aspired, and for which their victories over all fleshly tendency were the preparation and the avenues. That state which Christ described when he said, The Father was in him, and he in the Father, and in which the disciples should also be in him, and in the Father and he and the Father should be in them, and that they should be all one. In which St. Paul said that when Christ had put all things under his feet, including death and sin, he should render up the kingdom to God, and God should be all in all. It is in this state in which the nature of God becomes the nature of all living souls, from which all sin and frailty and tendency to sin and frailty are purged out, a condition of perfect and boundless holiness power, and perfection, towards which all earnest aspirants, pagan or Christian, a Socrates, a Plato, a Buddha, St. John, a Simon, Stilates, a Fenelon, a Fox, a Wesley, or a Swedenborg, have in all ages and regions striven and suffered, walking the rugged paths of life in tears, in daily martyrdom, in shame and persecution, but at the same time in joy and triumph, far beyond the conception of the rejoicing and the triumphs of the world seeing before them and above them and within them that paradise of God long since shut out from our vision by the clouds of mortal passion, but never lost from the memory and the hopes of the most abject, that homeland in which God had walked with Adam and is still walking with the saints, the land of divine liberty, which is divinest love. It is the state which Master Eckhart really sought to designate, though his speculative genius led him to tropes and figures made unbefitting by his intensest yearnings. So Suso, his admiring disciple, read him, So Taller of Strasbourg, Heinrich of Nordlingen, Ruhlmann Merzwin of Strasbourg, and others read him. And on these purified interpretations arose with these great men the society of the friends of God, These friends of God, like the Methodists of the present day, did not abandon their union with the church to which they belonged. They sought only to organize an association for mutual comfort and strength, not to found a new heretical sect. They sought to imitate Christ and to restore the original purity of the church. Their opposition was not to the church itself, but to the corruption of its doctrines and the immortality of the clergy. Their zeal was not to throw down the organic constitution of Catholicism, but for the purification of it and for comfort to the people at large. They stood as a middle link betwixt the Church and the Waldenses, and in the bosom of the Waldenses also arose another society of the Friends of God, at the head of whom stood Nicholas of Basel, who was eventually burnt as a heretic at Vienne. Berthold von Rochbach, put to death at Spier, And Martin of Mayence was also burnt at Cologne in 1393. None of these wholly rejected the doctrines of Catholicism. They honored the Virgin highly, but rejected the worship of images. Some of them frequented Mass, but contended that the laity might perform it as lawfully as the clergy. They preached and wrote books in the mother tongue, and thus vastly extended the circle of their operations. In close connection with these associations was another called the Brotherhood of the Winklers, a German word indicating workers in corners or in secret places. Rorick and his friends of God says that these Winklers, or confessors of the people, were not located merely in Strasbourg, or were leaders of the association there merely but they were missionaries, leading a wandering life, instructing individuals as they met with them, and confirming in the faith those already converted. They were men of blameless life and strict morals, remaining singly not from a notion of the sanctity of celibacy, but to enable them to devote themselves more entirely to their duties. From the impression of a direct divine call, they endured the hardships of a self-denying life, which frequently was terminated by a violent death. They were twelve, after the number of the apostles, and they were regarded by their followers as the only genuine priests. They were supported by the contributions of the association, and when they came amongst the believing brethren, they received them as guests by those of property. Others gave them money, which they distributed. When a new master was needed, he was elected from youths of pure morals. For this solemn choice, the whole community came together, and seating themselves in a circle around the proposed master, Each one gave his judgment whether he was of a pure life and worthy of becoming a master. After proper inquiries and satisfactory answers, the young man was desired to stand up and was exhorted to lead a chaste life and to remain voluntarily poor. Whereupon he solemnly pledged himself never to forsake the faith. So he became master and was greeted as such, From this time he must prosecute no other business, nor follow any trade. He must live exclusively the life of a teacher, and possess no property but subsist on the offerings of the brethren and sisters. There were not only masters, but mistresses, who were chosen in the same manner, but of their particular duties we have no certain information. In the absence of a master, one of the community offered exhortations, and meetings were much oftener held when masters were absent than when present. But when a master arrived amongst them, the occasion was celebrated by a general feast and rejoicing. The Winklers kept no sacred holiday except Christmas, Easter, and Whitsuntide. As to Mary's days and Apostles' days, they regarded them not. They had no faith in purgatory. They took the sacrament in the churches, but they held that a material church was no church and that they can confess to one another, and that whatever they were, they could pray and be heard of God. As for Masses, public almsgivings, prayers, and singing for the dead, they regarded them as of no real avail, nor did they put faith in holy water, nor the blessing of meats, cakes, candles, etc. Of these Winklers, who were regular Protestants, no fewer than 80 were condemned to death at the stake in Strasbourg in 1222 together with their master, Johannes. But before closing this chapter, we must take a nearer view of the friends of God, and especially of Tauler, Nicholas of Basel, and Roman Merswin, Much light has been thrown upon the lives and characters of these great men by the discovery of a large folio volume found in the archives of Strasbourg, and formerly belonging to the convent of the Knights of St. John in that city. The English reader has been made acquainted with the contents of this volume by Miss Susanna Winkworth in her Life and Sermons of Dr. John Towler. The discovered folio contains the correspondence of Nicholas of Basel with Roman Merswin, who established a company of friends of God in the convent of the Knights of St. John on an island in the Rhine called the Grunenwerth, or Green Meadow. In it were found the letters and religious experiences of Toller Nicholas, and Merswin up to 1382. And most remarkable they are. The central figure is Nicholas of Basel, who, though only a layman had with his pious friends, entered on a course of religious reform, which threatened to revolutionize the whole of the popedom. It was therefore necessary that this work should be carried on with all possible secrecy, or their lives would have been cut very short. They attacked the rank corruptions of the Church, and even its learning, if unbased on the direct teachings of the Divine Spirit. Nicholas therefore comes forth ever and anon, like an apparition from some hidden scene. Whence he sees the movements of the world. He bears no name on such occasions but the man from Oberland and his mission accomplished, he retires again to this invisible abode, which is known only to his four intimate friends. Thus we have him suddenly appearing in Strasbourg for the conversion of Towler. Dr. John Towler was a learned and eloquent preacher of that city. His preaching excited the wonder of the country far round. Nicholas of Basel came to hear him. Having heard him, he desired to confess to him. But in his confession, Towler is struck with astonishment at his words. He tells Towler that he has really come, not so much to hear him as to show him that he has not yet qualified himself to preach. That to do that effectually and acceptably to God he must first empty himself of all his mere human learning and self-knowledge, and, like a child, sit down and learn of God, whose spirit in one hour will teach him more than all the schools in a whole life. Towler is struck with the truth of this. He desires Nicholas to put him in the way of this new teaching. And here the man began to teach the Master. It is soon seen which is the real Master in God, and Towler, in amazement and humility, flings himself at the foot of the cross. And for two years, renouncing all preaching, submits to the tuition of the Holy Spirit in solitude, reading of the gospel and prayer. Once more he comes forth a new and far more wonderful man. His sermons have a life and fire in them, such as has never been witnessed by any of that time. Men and women were struck down under his ministry by scores, and lay for hours as dead, but only to revive to a more genuine life. From that day, John Towler became a great name in the Church of Christ, and remained so at this age. Roman Merswin was a wealthy merchant of Strasbourg who retired from a mercantile life to a religious one. He too became acquainted with the man from the Oberland, and as to Towler, it was a new era to him. He became inspired with the true spirit of that and interior religion, which at once reduces all worldly wealth to its proper place, that of making men not nominal but real Christians. He founded the convent of the Order of St. John as an asylum for pious persons like himself, who were not bound by any oath, but lived together for the benefit of mutual edification, seeking not counsel from men, but from the Spirit of God, and so long as they had it, indifferent whether it flowed through priest or layman. In fact, a society of the friends of God based on the declaration of Christ, that they who were his genuine disciples were no longer his servants, but his friends. Roman, like Taller, remained in close but secret correspondence with the man from Oberland. Till his death, no doubt actively engaged with these great and mysterious men in spreading the knowledge of gospel truth through countries far and wide. Nicholas of Basel and his friends predicted the death of Gregory XI, which took place at the time foretold. Namely, in the fourth week in Lent, 1378, they foresaw also the grand schism in the popedom which commenced in the following year. So deeply was Nicholas's concern for the shameful corruptions of the church and of the papal court that in his 70th year in the year 1376, taking a trusty friend of God with him, he went to Rome and, in a personal interview with Gregory, warned him of the trouble's coming and of his own death, if he did not commence a real and sweeping reform. The Pope received this mission kindly, but did not profit by it, and died as they had foreshone. Many wonderful spiritual phenomena and revelations are related as attending the meetings of these friends of God, who, after this, set out different ways into France, Germany, Italy, Hungary, and other countries to prosecute the work of gospel reform. They fell in honoured martyrdom in different places, Nicholas himself at Vienne in France, as already stated. When he was about ninety years of age, many ladies were distinguished members of the Society of Friends of God, and amongst them preeminent Agnes, Queen of Hungary, the widow of King Andrew, and the sisters Christina and Margareta Ebner, both nuns. For a very interesting account of the Friends of God, see the Spiritual Magazine of 1862, numbers for May and August. Such were the various sects heralding. The downfall of corrupt Catholicity, good and bad, all were crying for a new order of things. The good were entering deep into the arcana of the Christian life and the soul. The bad were driven, as by disorderly and sensual spirits, into crimes and rabid heresies. The true and the false equally maintained the doctrine of spiritual agency, and both good and bad exemplified it in their actions. They were a rabies and an orgasm running through all mortal affairs, clearly drawing fire from deeper sources than mere mortal passions. The power of God long neglected and outraged in the Roman Church had departed and left it open to vice, luxury, libertinism, and a terrible lust of dominion and destruction. Rome had scourged, martyred, and calumniated the faithful. The devil had shown to the Savior all the kingdoms of the world and offered them if he would bow down and worship him. The offer was declined, but it was again made to the Savior's professed vicars on earth, and the fatal gift had been accepted. The church abandoned Christ and his poverty and accepted temporal power and regal instead of apostolic state. The demon virus and the gift soon operated. The church became secularized. Instead of poverty, wealth, Instead of nowhere to lay their hands, the pontiffs and cardinals and many proud prelates and mitred abbot laid theirs on silken pillows in palaces, instead of being summoned before kings and magistrates for Christ's sake. They sate as kings and judged his honest followers. By the very places the two parties occupied was plainly indicated which of them were the disciples to whom Christ had promised the kingdom of heaven with persecutions. Instead of fasts, there came feastings. Instead of being surrounded by the sick seeking to be healed, they were surrounded by martial guards and sate at banquets and the right hand of kings. In spite of all Christ's warnings, the world had got them and the devil. They sent out their armies and exterminated whole peoples who demanded to serve God in the ancient simplicity. Under Simon de Montfort, the papal legate, they ravaged province drove out Raymond, the rightful sovereign, usurped his lands, and murdered his subjects. They exterminated the whole of Christian Bohemia by the hand of their gloomy agent, Ferdinand II of Austria. They laid waste the mountains of the Savines with fire and sword, and their inquisition in Italy, Spain, and other countries made hell and Romanism synonymous. Everywhere the flames of burning martyrs, everywhere their instruments of torture, everywhere their arrogance and insolence and sensuality proclaimed that the gift of the devil had done its work and that Satan reigned in the outraged name of Christ. The very cells of nuns, awful witnesses in the insurrection of nature against spurious religionism, were declared to be paved with the skeletons of murdered children. Luther in his Table Talk, page 307, says Pope Gregory, who confirmed celibacy, ordered a fish pond at Rome, hard by a convent of nuns to be cleared out. The water being let off, there were found at the bottom more than 6000 skulls of children that had been cast into the pond and drowned. He adds that in this own time, the foundations of a nunnery being removed at Nienburg in Austria, similar revelations were made. The work of the devil's gift of temporal dominion was equally efficacious on the people at large. Thrust out from all personal knowledge of the gospel, they were grown brutish as the beasts they tended. The spiritualism of the church had become the spiritualism of devils, and rioted in lying miracles and forced by its iron repression of conscience, a plentiful crop of heresies, and a sanguinary harvest of martyrdom. Millions of groaning souls cried, how long, O Lord? The times were ripe, and men's violated hearts were ripe for the great catastrophe of retribution. The avatar of Reformation came at length by the natural weight of rottenness in the apostolical hierarchy, and by the mingled efforts of Huss and Wycliffe, of Luther, and the crowned Balam of Reform, Henry Eighth of England, who, meaning the work of the devils of lust and murder, did the work of God it was the era of revival the memorable 16th century the reformation was come thank you for listening to this sample to continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks please subscribe for 777 per month go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.